This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about that time when the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre. And I'll be talking about Dennis Rader, or as you might know him, BTK. <laughs> this is going to be a good one. Uh, it's, a, it's a, he is a heavy hitter. <laughs> um, I feel like first we should say um, that we've, we've had some inquiries about sponsoring the show. Yes. Not from anyone with any real money. <laughs> But would you please tell folks about Dan Jones's proposition? Yes. I think it's hilarious. Yes. So uh, our friend, since we were in high school, yeah, uh, texted me and said that he would like to sponsor the podcast. And for $300, he would like us each episode to say something cool about him until he is out. And we would have to keep doing this until he is outbid by another sponsor. Which... I think Dan could have done this for like 10 bucks. Yes, we <laughs> we will accept no money from him. That's right. But we think it's really funny. So let's say some cool stuff about Dan Jones. Um, he has good hair. I know this because I oh, cut it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, but like not just because it's not he has just a great good. Cut. It's not just good because I cut it. He grows a nice head of hair. <laughs> Okay, that's it for that week. That's he gets it. That's, one all, that's all he gets. Yeah. And this one's on the house. <laughs> okay. So Dennis Rader, better known as BTK. Oh my God. Is a serial killer who murdered 10 people in Wichita, Kansas, and evaded authorities for decades. So from his first murder to his eventual capture, 31 years. I'm so excited you decided to do this one. This is, this is a crazy story. This is, um, I would say the first serial killer that I really got interested in. And I know that sounds weird, but it was. Knowing you, it's not at all. (laughs) Um, But I read like this just one. I just remember um, seeing the stuff on the news about it Mm -hmm. and. So vividly. And so... Well, because he was captured when we were in high school. Like, right after we graduated okay, high okay. school. He started, like, taunting the police, like, in 2004. So that's, like, the okay. year we graduated high school. Yeah. Ultimately, it was completely his own ego that did him in. That's what I love about this. Yes. I mean, that sounds gross to say that. No, but- no, no. But, like, if he could have just, like... If he could have quietly kept killing people, who knows how long. How long he could, how many people he could have killed, how long he could have gone on. Yeah. I got my info for this episode from um, murderpedia.org and the court transcripts. Okay. I would like to start by saying, in researching this um, case, I came across a definition for a psychopath. And 
I realize that on multiple episodes now, I have called myself a psychopath. And I would like to clarify <laughs> that I am not. I'm going to share this definition with you. Um, we'll be the judge, Brandy. <laughs> okay. So a psychopath is a person who is incapable of empathy for other beings. They are self-centered to the extreme that no one else matters unless someone serves a purpose or potential purpose for the psychopath. This is a person who has no problems hurting others, no guilt, shame, or remorse. It is a person who is deceptive, lies freely and skillfully without shame or regret. So before you read that definition, you were like, psychopath is just a, a nice, fun person. <laughs> <What did> you- <laughs> I don't know. I think that I have, um, I would like to rephrase how I describe myself. I have a morbid curiosity, <laughs> but I am in no way a psychopath. I feel lots of empathy for others. Yes, you do. So, <laughs> I just like to go on the record and take back that self proclamation that I'm a psychopath. Very good. I agree. (laughs) Okay. Now on to BTK. Dennis Rader was born in Southeast Kansas on March 9th, 1945. He was the first of four sons born to William and Dorothy Rader. The family moved to Wichita when Dennis was a young boy and the Raiders settled into a modest home, um, which may remained in the Raider family until it was sold in 2005. Wow. So, 60 years mm-hmm. <laughs> ish. <laughs> um, not much is known about Raider's childhood by his own admission. He says he developed fantasies about bondage, control and torture from an early age. Um, like while still in grade school, Ooh. he dreamed of tying girls up and having his way with him. The Mouseketeer, Annette Funicello, was one of his favorite targets for imaginary bondage. Ew. Yeah. He also admits to having killed cats and dogs by hanging them as oh. a child. But of course, I mean, you kind of know that about a serial Yeah, killer. I mean, that's not surpri- the least bit surprising about yeah. a somebody who goes on to become a serial killer. Um, those who knew him personally described a quiet and polite young man who preferred to keep to himself. Dennis Rader was not a follower or a joiner or known to be um, very socially active in high school. Um, one friend described him as utterly lacking a sense of humor, but tending to be studious and focused. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like a fun friend to have. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's what I look for in my friends. Yeah. So that's why we're so good. <laughs> All right. (laughs) He was described as a person who chose his words before speaking and he would give you his full attention as you spoke to him. So I don't know what that says about him, but I think that says like creepy dead eyed stare. I agree. I agree. Yeah. (laughs) In the summer of 1966, at age 21, Raider joined the U.S. Air Force. Raider's four years on active duty in the Air Force appear to have been unremarkable um, discharged from active duty in the summer of 1970 Raider returned to his hometown of Wichita where did he serve do you know um, all over the place he I know he was in Japan for a time um, why does your face look like that I don't know I'm just like now my mind is spinning out like did he get away with crimes, crimes there yeah. yeah 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 I'm very well could have Ugh. yeah okay continue So less than a year after he returned to Wichita um, on May 22nd, 1971, Dennis Rader married Paula Dietz. 
Paula was also from the same area and had attended the same high school. Dennis was 26 at the time and Paula was 23. They settled into Park City, which is like a suburb of, of Wichita. It's like, you know, one of the little towns that makes up the Wichita metropolitan area. Is Thank you suburb. for exploiting. <laughs> In case you didn't know what a fucking suburb was. <laughs> I totally christened that for you. <laughs> Brandy, you're going to need to slow that down. Explain. And people are in homes there. And that's when you have like four walls and... <laughs> <laughs> don't ever assume that people have any knowledge of anything ever <laughs> when they got married dennis was working in the meat department of the iga supermarket which i feel like is creepy i'm with you yeah so he's like slicing big exactly when you find out that someone goes on to become a serial killer and their past they worked in a meat department Ugh, you think that they probably got some weird satisfaction out of that right yeah oh yeah yeah um paula was a bookkeeper by january of 1974 dennis rader was in between jobs and restless it's not a great combination. <laughs> Idle hands. Yes, are that's right. <laughs> the devil's play thing. Yes. <laughs> His wife now worked at the VA hospital in Wichita and didn't like driving in snow and ice. So Dennis would um, sometimes drive her to and from work. On these trips, you know, after he dropped her off, he didn't have a lot to do. And so he would do what he called trolling. So he would drive or walk around certain neighborhoods or school campuses where there were women to watch. He would focus in on like a good prospect, somebody that caught his eye and enter into a fantasy of bondage, torture and death, imagining what he would do to her, bind her, torture her, kill her. Do you know if he had anything that he looked for? In a person. So, um, his victims did not have anything. It wasn't like everyone was blonde. No, no, no. Okay. They didn't have anything in common. All age ranges. He killed okay. both men and women. Um, it was said that he found Hispanic women very attractive. He liked their dark eyes and dark hair. Okay. And his first victims happened to be a Hispanic family. Oh, God. So, it's 1974. He's on these trolling missions and there's a Hispanic family that had just moved into a corner house in one of these neighborhoods. One day after dropping his wife off, he spied Julie Otero, age 34, and her daughter, Josephine, Josie, age 11. Raider devised a plan. He gathered together what he called his hit kit, consisting of a gun, cords, knives, and various tools for breaking and entering. He observed the Otero household for a time, um, getting an idea of their routine when people left and returned, what their daily schedule was like. On the morning of January 15th, he could wait no longer. After 8 a.m., he came around the house, snuck into the yard, and cut the phone line. Hesitating at the back door... Unsure if he could go through with it, he finally 
got the courage. Oh, God. And barged in. Is that his word? Yes. Yeah. He said um, that he stood there and started to panic and didn't think he could go through with it. And then um, I think actually what happened is that somebody opened the back door to let the dog out. And and he he took that opportunity to. Yeah. You mean he got really courageous all of a sudden? All of a sudden. He just mustered up all that courage. Mm hmm. And went in and fucking killed a family. Yeah. Um, Joseph and Julie Otero were home with the youngest two of their five children. Josie, who was 11, and Joseph Jr., Joey, who was nine. Raider overpowered them by threatening them with a gun and forced them into the bedroom. He tied them all up. And attempted to strangle them using cord, bags, and their own clothing. He later recounted that it was much more difficult than he anticipated to strangle them. And that multiple times he thought they were dead, but really they had just blacked out. And that they came back, too. Oh, I'm so sorry for him. That that right. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty tough on him. I mean, it's just terrible. So he kills the mother and father first. He kills them in their bedroom. Then he takes Joey, the little boy, to his bedroom, kills him in there. And then thinking that he had already strangled Josie, she had just blacked out. She Mm -hmm. comes back to he makes her get up, walk down to the basement where he makes a noose and hangs her from the sewer pipe in the basement. He takes off her clothes And he acts out some kind of sexual fantasy on her and he leaves behind semen on her legs and on the pipe behind her that she was tied to. This one, like, I I remember seeing, Norman and I saw a documentary about BTK a while Mm -hmm. back and I remember this one in particular just really got to me because if I remember correctly, when he got in there, he told the parents, look, I'm just here to rob you. Yeah, he Let said. Let me just tie you up. Yeah. And I, there's something about that. Yeah. You just, you feel so horrible for for the victims because you're thinking, well, yeah, I would probably do the same, I guess. Yeah, so you know? he got in there. He wasn't expecting um, Joseph, the father, to okay. be home. And so he, on the spot, came up with this ruse that he was a vagrant and that he was just there to steal their car and get some money. Yeah. Um, and so he had a gun, and so the father complied. He thought yeah. he was protecting his family. He We're was just like, gonna, this will stop this us will from stop being him. killed. Yes, I'll just, we'll do what he says. He'll take our money, he'll take our car, he'll leave. Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, afterwards, after he strangled the four, um, he picked up a bit, collected his things, picked and left. Picked up a bit? Yeah, because there had been like a little bit of a struggle here and there, so he kind of picked that stuff up so that the scene wasn't terrible. These are his own words. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not holding you account. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. Because he, you know, opened his kit up, so he picked, put all this stuff back in his kit, okay. so he didn't leave behind any of his own belongings. And this, so he left semen on the pipe, mm-hmm. but this was before DNA testing was a big mm-hmm. thing, right? So yeah, this yeah. was like 70s, you 74. Said, 74, okay, yeah. Yeah. At that time, I don't know that they could get much out of a semen sample at all. I mean, they collected okay. it. I don't know what testing was available at the time. I feel like 
I shouldn't even say it because I feel I feel like there's some way that they could get some kind of profile out of it. Not a DNA profile, but no, like a blood type or something. I have no idea. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. Well, and I assume that, you know, they collect everything they can possibly collect in the hope that one day maybe it'll yes. give them something they need. Yes. Um, so he picks up. He takes the um, Otero's car, backs out of the driveway. And by now he's like so flustered because it, he's like, according to him, he had like gone into a state when he went into this house and completely lost control over himself. Mm-hmm. Factor X is what he calls it. Factor X steps forward and he loses all control. So by now he's coming back into, you know, realization of what he's done and he's very flustered. He backs out of the driveway and he does so so fast without looking that he almost hits another car, like an oncoming car. Um, that would have been so great. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he drives the car to a nearby supermarket and leaves it there. Um, somebody later recounts that they saw him leaving this car there and that he was like physically like shaking. She described it as like shaking like a leaf when he gets out of this wow. car. Um, so Raider had no idea that the Oteros had three older children, all of whom had left for school before his arrival. Charlie, 15, Daniel, 14, and Carmen, 13, mm-hmm. were the ones who found their family dead when they arrived home from school that oh afternoon. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. Next, in April 1974. So that was January 1974. Just a couple months later, Raider begins stalking a woman named Catherine Bright. Um, she's 21. And he had seen her one day entering um, the home that she rented in Wichita and had just become obsessed with her. Mm-hmm. On April 4th, he broke into her room or into her home via the back porch and hid in her bedroom. Around 2 p.m., Catherine arrived home, accompanied by her brother, Kevin, who was 19 years old. Kevin didn't live there and Raider had not planned for him to be there. Um, He had, like, gone to the bank that day with his sister or something and had come back to her house. Um, Raider startled them by emerging from the bedroom and pointing a gun at them. Shit. Yeah. He then forced them into a bedroom where he tied Catherine up and then took Kevin into a different bedroom and tied him up. But he had only brought enough supplies to tie up Catherine. Mm -hmm. And so he had to just tie Kevin up with stuff he found around the room. And Kevin worked his way loose. Whoa. Um, And he got in a vicious fight with Raider. He nearly got the gun from from him. Oh, my God. But Raider um, managed to get the gun back, and he shot Kevin in the face. Oh, my God. Still fighting... Kevin made another attempt to overpower Raider. Wait, shot in the face? He got shot in the fucking face, and he's still fighting. Oh, my God. Yes. Then Raider shot him again and shot him in the side of the head. Oh, my gosh. Kevin dropped to the floor, and Raider assumed that he was dead or dying and left the room to go work on Catherine Mm -hmm. in the other bedroom. She fought him as well but was tied up and couldn't do much and he the scene had become so chaotic it had gone so 
not according to his plan that he switched from strangulation to stabbing. He stabbed her 11 times in the back and torso. Meanwhile, Kevin had managed to get up, shot in the head and the face, run out of the house screaming for help. No. Yes. So when this happened, Raider had to book it out of there and he ran from the scene on foot back to his car, which he had ditched like blocks away. Yeah. Once again, I think I know a story. I have no idea. I have no memory of this. Yeah. Holy crap. Catherine died at the hospital a few hours later, despite attempts to save her with surgery and blood transfusions. Kevin was in critical condition after being shot in the fucking head and face. Yeah. But he survived. Are you serious? He survived. Oh, my God. Yeah. He had lifelong problems because of it. Nerve problems and memory problems. But he survived being shot in that face and head. Was he able to talk to the police about what... He did, but I think that at this point... um, during some of his crimes, BTK wore a mask. Okay. It was like a plastic Halloween mask, oh, just like God. the face, like just like a little flimsy face one. It was like a woman's face. Oh, God. That, it's so fucking creepy. Yeah. And I think maybe he had worn a mask during this. Okay. I don't know for sure. Okay. So that was April 1974. Oh, my gosh. Now we're to October of 1974. An editor of the Wichita Eagle newspaper received a phone call directing him to a letter hidden in an engineering book at the Wichita Public Library. Oh, my gosh. Ooh, he notified police who found the letter at the library. It was a gruesome description of the unsolved Otero murders by someone who had complete knowledge of the crime scene. Yeah. It was written in poor English with numerous misspellings. The writer was concerned that the police had recently arrested the wrong men for the Otero murders. So they had arrested somebody, an acquaintance of the Oteros or something like that, like two men, I think it was. Wow. So this letter proudly proclaims, I did it myself with no one's help. And then the letter <sighs> went on to say, the code words for me will be bind them, torture them. Kill them. BTK. So he gave himself that nickname. If we ever needed more proof that he's a douche. Serious. Someone who gives themselves a nickname. Yes. Okay, now it's November 1974. Good God. And Dennis Raider gets a great new job. With ADT security. Oh, oh my God, I got this. Oh, no. A company specializing in the installation of alarm systems. Mm. He would stay with ADT for the next 14 years. I bet he did. Yeah. He rose to the position of installation supervisor, which gave him some amazing flexibility in the terms of where he could be during the day. He was just supposed to, you know, stop in on various job sites. So there was few people who knew where he was supposed to be or anywhere that he had to check in during the day. Well, and have you ever had one of those people come to your house? They're like, 
It's their job to scare the shit out of you. Yes. And be like, I don't know about this neighborhood you're in. So yes. that was his job to go and scare yes. people. I bet he was great at oh, it. Oh, I'm sure he was great at it. Yeah, he went on to be a freaking installation supervisor. It was reportedly like the first job that he stayed at this long and was so successful at. Because it was, I mean, just the perfect job for a fucking psychopath like him. Mm-hmm. Or you. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> so between the responsibilities of this job and the birth of his first child raider found little time to kill unfortunately that's the first time i've ever heard little time to kill (laughs) like in a literal sense sense, yes Um, but he says he still managed to find time to troll and Mm. would fantasize over what he would do to the women he saw so Almost three years go by, and now it's March of 1977. March 17th of 1977, to be exact. Raider decided it was time for another murder. He went to a house he'd been watching for a while and showed some kind of badge to the children who lived at this home. Oh, no. Um, Probably his ADT security badge. To a child, it would look very official. And well, then, and children tend not to question adults. Yeah, I mean, and they let him in the house. Oh, no. He was closing the blinds in the living room as their mother, Shirley Vian, came into the room. Oh, Can you God. just imagine? Oh, my God. You come, you're, you're in your bedroom. Your children are watching TV in the living room. You come down in your bathrobe and there's a fucking man standing in your living room who's closed and locked the door and is closing your blinds. She freaks the fuck out, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And tells him to leave or explain who he is and he pulls a gun. Yep. At gunpoint, he orders the children into the bathroom and barricaded them in there. Oh my gosh. Then he forced Shirley into her bedroom, tied her up, and strangled her with a cord. He left semen on a pair of panties found next to the body. He was gone before the children could break out of the bathroom and summon help. Raider later stated that a ringing telephone unnerved him and caused him to leave before he could kill the children. Oh my gosh. He had planned because they had seen his face. He had planned that he would go ahead and kill them too. How old were the kids? The kids were little. The oldest was like six or eight. And then the other two were younger. Little babies. Yeah. Okay. So that was March of 77. Mm -hmm. December of 77. Raider became fixated on Nancy Fox, a 25 year old. He was stalking her from her residence and workplace. She worked at a jewelry store. He reportedly like went in there a time or two and looked at cheap jewelry, whatever. Yeah. On the evening of December 8th, he broke into her modest duplex through her bedroom window after first cutting the phone line. Yeah. He awaited her arrival from her evening job at the jewelry store and Nancy Lived alone. She was the sole occupant of this duplex. And so he knew, you know, he didn't have to worry about anybody else. No brothers, no children. Mm -mm. Yeah. The initial confrontation took place in the kitchen, in the kitchen, presumably again at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. Nancy didn't fight back. I am sure she thought, I'm just going to do what this guy says. He'll rape me. 
but I can survive that. See, that's exactly what I'm thinking about that yeah. first crime is yeah. I truly don't know how I would handle I that. I don't either. Because you think, okay, well, a rape I can survive. Yeah. A robbery I can survive. Maybe this, mm-hmm. you just don't know the smart yeah. way to play it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So she thinks, you know, I'm going to do everything he says. Worst case scenario, he's going to rape me and leave. So he orders her into the bedroom where she he ties her up and then he takes all of his clothes off. And oh I'm sure God. she's like, you know, that's happening. And then he tells her who she who he really is. Oh, shit. Oh, of course, because he's got this huge ego bragging so, yeah. about how he's the person who killed the Oteros as he strangles her to death. Oh, my God. This time he left semen on a nightgown found next to the body. The following morning, Raider dialed a police dispatcher from a payphone and said, Yes, you will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing, Nancy Fox, and left the receiver dangling. Of course he did. Mm-hmm. Police rushed to the residence and found the lifeless body still lying on the bed. A tape recording of that call was eventually played repeatedly um, all over the news. And they were asking anybody who recognized the voice to call in. No one, including Raiders co-workers or family, were able to recognize the voice. Do you know, did he attempt to disguise Mm -mm. his voice? From from my understanding, he didn't. It was just his voice. It was just his voice. Wow. Mm -hmm. But I'm imagining that, like, it's... What, 1977, probably mm-hmm. the recording equipment at that time is, it's all analog, you know, on yeah tape. And so I think anybody's voice probably wouldn't sound quite like it does. You, you're, it's a recording through a payphone, and then that recording is being pay, played on the news. I don't know that anybody would be able to recognize someone's voice, even well, if they hadn't made an attempt to. And even if it sounds kind of similar. yeah. Would I mean you if yeah yeah you wouldn't want it to sound like so you'd be like no that's not there's no way there's yeah that the good guy from ADT right yeah okay in early 1978 Raider attempted to send a postcard with a sarcastic poem entitled Shirley Locks. To the Wichita Eagle, but no one recognized the significance of it until days later. It was followed by a letter that was taken more seriously. In it, the killer took full responsibility for the Oturo murders, the Shirley Vian murder, and the Nancy Fox murders, plus an unnamed seventh victim, um, later assumed to be Catherine Bright. Okay. The letter forced the Wichita Police Department to make a decision. They decided that they would publicly announce that Wichita had an unknown serial killer on the loose. Mm -hmm. And the citizens were urged to be extra careful about locking doors and looking out for each other. A whole generation of women grew up in Wichita with the instructions to, you know, lock your door the second you get in and then check your phone. Check for a dial tone. Oh, my God. That is so scary. Yes. Sales of security systems. skyrocketed no oh my god yes he was in people's homes selling them security systems to protect them from him 
that is okay. I feel like in this moment, it is so bad to be on a podcast because I'm like gripping right. my head. Like, <laughs> and I'm wondering why the hell was I so excited for you to do this one? This, yeah, this yeah. is so bad. Yeah, it's fucking terrible. I thought it'd be real fun. Yeah, that'd be a real, <laughs> real good time. We're not laughing as much as I thought we would. <laughs> In June of 1978, Raider's wife Paula gives birth to their second and final child. She had been pregnant through all of these events and Nancy Fox's murder. So he's got a baby at home and a pregnant wife. And he's I, out doing all of this. I'm always so curious about the spouse yeah. in these situations. Yeah. I'll go into the family a okay, little bit later. Because yeah, I, oh, man. Yeah. Um, in April 1979, Raider mm-hmm. broke into the home of Anna Williams, a 63-year-old widow who had recently lost her husband. He waited fruitlessly for Anna to come home. But she didn't until much later than he anticipated. Raider grew restless, took a few items, and left disappointed. In June, so a couple months later, Mm -hmm. Anna receives a package in the mail with a poem entitled, Oh, Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? So I read this poem in researching this, and I would just like to say, it's fucking terrible. There's no, I mean, this guy is no poet, let me tell you. (laughs) There's no cadence. There's, it's terrible. Okay. Is that your main issue <laughs> with this? That's my main issue with this. <laughs> a lot of people think BTK was a good poet. He, he was, was not. not. I am here to tell you he was a terrible fucking poet. It didn't make any goddamn sense. <laughs> so this is another one that I, that sticks with okay, me. Okay, yeah. Imagine you get a package. Oh my gosh. This package has this, this letter saying, oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? A drawing of what he had intended to do to her. What? And then items he had stolen from her house. Okay, what did he steal? And are you going to read us the poem? No, I am not going to read you the poem. (laughs) And I don't know. It didn't list it specifically. It just said a few small items. But I have this cheese and wine right here. (laughs) You're going to give him snaps? Yes, snaps. (laughs) That just... That that scares the shit out of me. Yes. Um, a similar package was also mailed to the TV studios at KAKE TV in Wichita. Mm-hmm. Anna was terrified. All of Wichita uh, knew yeah. about this serial killer by now. She booked it the fuck out of there. She was oh, like, really? I'm gone. She moved far away. Okay. Yes. 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 <laughs> I know it's always impossible to know exactly what you do in that situation, yeah. but I think if I had even the slightest bit of money, I'd be like, okay, um, he's not going to get a second chance at killing exactly. me. Exactly. Goodbye. My new name is yes. Cassie Chadwick. Chadwick. <laughs> Shout out to I a previous episode. I am the illegitimate episode. daughter of Andrew Carnegie. <laughs> oh, what? He's dead. Um, timeline doesn't match up. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I would get out. Get the fuck out yes. of there. Yes. Or I would live at the police station. <laughs> like, look, open up one of those holding cells. I'm moving in. Yes. Go ahead and incarcerate <laughs> yeah. me. I'm sure I've done something terrible. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So that was 1979. Jesus. I mean, 
Okay, I don't know how to say this. Yeah. He accomplished a lot in the 70s. Yes. I mean, he uh, yeah. accomplished is the wrong word. Yes. He was busy. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and he had two fucking small children at home. Yeah. Ugh. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. By 1985, it had been years since the last kill. Mm-hmm. 70, 78, 77. Why'd he wait so long? I don't know. I don't, I'm not okay. sure. I think not a lot of opportunity. He was busy raising his kids. He did get involved in scouts and uh, he was really involved in his church i mean these things are disgusting (laughs) to me that is so weird to me so um he was i believe living off of the memories that he had stored from these horrible crimes Uh and he was doing these Okay, so when they finally catch him, they find all of these Polaroids that he had taken of himself ew. in bondage. Oh, no. Ew. Oh, he no. had tied himself up in all of these crazy positions, many times dressed as a woman. Uh-huh. And then he had rigged up a Polaroid camera to where he could pull a cord and it would take a picture of him in these crazy positions. I mean, there were tons of these pictures. I saw some of them during oh, my research no. and they are hor- horrifying. Okay. And we should say, obviously... That'd be gross to picture just about anybody like that. But if you've seen a picture of Dennis Rader. He's not a looker. No. You do not want to see him dressed as a woman. No. In bondage. No. You don't. (laughs) I don't want to see you in bondage, Kristen. (laughs) I thought you were going to say dressed as a woman. (laughs) I don't want to see you dressed as a woman, Kristen. (laughs) It's a bit of a farce, isn't it? (laughs) I like to think I pull it off well. (laughs) I mean, you're so tall. Who do you think you're kidding? I know. (laughs) I do my best, you know. <laughs> You're really doing some great stuff with contouring, covering up that Adam's apple. Mm-hmm. I follow Kim Kardashian very closely. <laughs> I would just like to go on the record and say Kristen looks nothing like a man. Thank you. <laughs> she looks certainly looks nothing like Dennis Rader either. Okay, now go ahead and tell him how super hot I am. <laughs> Believe me, Norm gave you enough shout out about how beautiful and talented you are on Twitter. <gasps> That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So everybody's heard it. You're the hot one. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it'd be really weird if my husband had been like. <laughs> if he'd been talking about the two beautiful, talented <laughs> yes, podcasters. I would have been uncomfortable. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Back to Dennis Rader. No, give me more compliments. <laughs> Okay, so it's 1985. It's been years since he last killed. Um, He, like I said, was a busy family man. He had no criminal record. He was doing this job with ADT, really moving up the ladder there. He was apparently religious and very involved in his church. Despite all of that, Mm -hmm. he went to great lengths to pull off his next murder. At this time, he's now 40 years old. Maureen Hedge, 53, was a widowed neighbor who lived on the same street in Park City as the Raiders. That's she bold. lived six houses down from them. 
his ego. Oh yeah, his he's he's gotten control. away. With, like yeah, he committed his first crime, his first murder over ten years ago. He's been taunting the police. Nobody's onto him. So his ego at this time is yeah. He's never even been questioned. No. Yeah. Yeah. She was described as a petite, friendly woman and a mother of four grown children, and her husband had died within the last year. Mm-hmm. On the weekend of April 27th, 1985, Raider was attending a Boy Scout camp with his fucking son mm-hmm. just outside of Wichita. He left the camp that evening with the pretext of having a headache and needing to get to town to buy something for it. He parked his car by a bowling alley in the city and bought himself a beer. He swished the liquid around in his mouth and then spit it out and then deliberately poured some beer on his clothing so he would smell like he had been drinking. Then he called a cab and pretended to be drunk and instructed the driver to take him to a park in Park City so he could walk it off before he got home. The park backed up to Marine Hedge's yard. When Raider gets to the park, he's disappointed to see that Marine's car is in the carport and he assumes she's home. He decides he's going to go through with it anyway. So he wanted to be there waiting. Yes. Okay. That was his MO. He wanted to be in the house before people got home. He didn't want to. It went so poorly when he broke into the Otero's house. It had gone very, when the we broke in when people were yeah. home, he had changed it to where he wanted to get there, be in hiding, and then yeah. have them, and then come out and surprise them. He cut the phone line, and then quietly pried open her back door. It turned out no one was home. But as soon as he got in there, a car pulled into the driveway. Oh, no. Oh, my God. And so he ran and hid in the bedroom closet. Yeah. Maureen Hedge and her friend Gerald Porter entered the home. Um, Gerald hung out for a little while and then left around 1 a.m. Oh, my God. Raider gosh. sat in the closet this whole time and waited for Maureen to go to bed and fall asleep. Oh, my God. Oh. After she fell asleep... He crept out of the closet, flipped on the light, and pounced on Maureen in her bed. He manually strangled the 100-pound woman to death. He didn't use a ligature this time. He did it with his bare hands. Then he did something that he hadn't done before. He dragged the body with the bedding to her car and put it in the trunk. What? He then drove to his church and dragged her body down into the basement where he had previously taped black plastic over the windows so no one could see in. And he posed the body and took pictures of it. Oh, no. In his church basement. In his church basement. Where he was such a trusted member that he had keys was he a in. deacon? He went on to become his church president later. It was okay. a Lutheran church. I don't really know what the various steps are. but You and I do not know this. <laughs> We've established that on this podcast. <laughs> he had keys okay. to the church. That, yeah, that says it all. Yeah. He then returned the body to the trunk of her car and found a dumping place 
in a ditch along a dirt road several miles outside of Park City and hid the body under some vegetation. Okay. By now, it was getting light, and Raider quickly made his way back to where he had left his car in Wichita. He parked Marine's car there after wiping it down for fingerprints and returned to the scout camp. He was not connected to this crime for 20 years. Oh, my gosh. This was never believed to be a BTK killing because it didn't match. He didn't use any oh, ligatures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't okay. match. Yep. Okay. She wasn't bound. No one knew that he had done it or connected him in any way to it for 20 years. Her body wasn't found for like eight days. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I think that really shows how good he'd gotten mm-hmm. at this. Absolutely. This woman who lived six doors down from him <sighs> was not connected at all until he claimed responsibility for it and walked people through exactly how it happened. Okay, now I understand that it wasn't totally his M.O., Mm-hmm. But how many women were dying of strangulation right. in Wichita? Yeah. I, the thing is, though, is that... It had been a long time. It had been a long time. Okay. And his victims did not fit any profile. He yeah. did, this was an old woman. He'd done young women. He'd done men. He'd done children. Yeah. So... Okay, yeah. That was maybe... Maybe I'm being too oh much God, of like a... Fucking door again, Kristen. Oh my God, it's my husband, the scariest <laughs> man of all. Oh, he scared the crap out of us. <laughs> We're talking about the BTK killer. And then some creepo appears at the door. Well, that was freaky. That was so scary. You're talking about the BTK, and all of a sudden, Norman pops up on the porch. <laughs> I expected him to be gone for like a while. Yeah, yeah. he said he was going to be gone for a while. He came back like an hour later. <laughs> His face was kind of obscured. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> okay, um, so back to the man who would sneak up on women and murder oh, them. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, is that what we were talking about? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so he's murdered his neighbor who lives six stores up, but... Is not connected to it at, for 20 years. Okay. At, until he confesses to it. He was, the police never connected him to the crime. Right. So now it's September of 1986. Mm-hmm. And Raider has his eye on Vicki Weggerly, a 28-year-old mother of two. Sometime after 10 a.m. on September 16th, he showed up at Vicki's door dressed like a telephone repairman, complete with hard hat. Oh, shit. He somehow managed to get Vicky to allow him inside the home to check the phone line. He fiddled with her phone for a minute, and then he informed her that she was going to be tied up. He forced her into the bedroom and attempted to do so, but she put up a fight, scratching him in the process. Mm-hmm. Raider finally managed to overpower her, though, and secured her with ropes, then proceeded to strangle her to death using pantyhose as a ligature. He photographed the dying body in a few poses and left in the Weggerly car. 
Vicky had warned him that her husband would be arriving home shortly. Mm-hmm. Raider later stated that had the husband came home, come home, he had decided that he would kill him well, as well, sure. obviously. I mean, that's no surprise. Bill Weggerly indeed came home soon afterward and even saw his own car <gasps> driving in the opposite direction away from the house. He couldn't identify the driver, but he thought like, it's like, I think it was one of those things where you see a car drive by and you're like, wait, was that my yeah. car? And you're like, mm, no, it wasn't. He could, he didn't see the driver. He knew it wasn't his wife, Vicky. Uh-huh. He gets home. Their two-year-old is sitting in the living room like, Oh. Unsupervised. Oh my God. He's like going through the house looking for Vicky. He can't find her because she had, was behind oh my God. the bed, between like the bed and the wall laying on the floor. Did he put her there? Yeah. yeah I think okay. when he was posing her to okay. take pictures. Once he finds her, he obviously calls the police. Paramedics rush to the scene. They try to revive her, but she's pronounced dead. Yeah. A short time later. Meanwhile, Raider had driven around the city disposing of evidence. I don't know what that means. Like tossing stuff, tossing out, stuff the out the window. In the Weggerly car. Um, then he returned to an area near the house and parked the Weggerly's car. It was just a couple blocks from their home when they found it. Mm-hmm. He exited the area on foot and returned to his own car nearby. Again. He was not connected to this crime. Oh, my God. Guess who the suspect was? Who? The husband. Oh, of course. Of course. Bill Weggerly's life took a rough turn. Oh. Not only had he lost his wife and the mother of his two children, police completely believed that he had done it. Yeah, and every other? Every other person. A dark cloud of suspicion hung over him. For 18 years. Oh, my God. This poor man. Oh, this poor man. Uh, Yeah. Can you imagine? No. No. But at the same time. Okay, so the serial killer goes from killing all these random people to all of a sudden killing his wife. That doesn't really. They just wanted to find somebody, right? Yeah, they didn't connect it. They didn't think it was a BTK crime. They thought it was like he had done it. Oh, I see. Just to, and that he had, you know, maybe tried to make it look as if maybe it was a BTK thing by, you know, tying her up and strangling her. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because, again, it had been, we know... That Raider was active during this time, but it had been since 1978 since he had communicated with police at all or committed a murder that they were able to tie to him. Did police think that maybe he was dead or in jail at this time? Yeah. So there was a lot of speculation that they believed that, yeah, maybe he had been arrested for something else. Maybe he had died. Maybe he'd left the area. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't think, oh, he's busy with work and raising two kids. No. Yeah, Exactly. Okay, so now it's January 1991, mm-hmm. and Raider commits his final murder. Now, 45, Raider has narrowed his scope to older women who lived alone as they were easier to subdue and less likely to fight back. Mm-hmm. He set his sights on Dolores D. Davis, 
a 63-year-old woman who lived only a mile and a half from his home. He His ego was so huge now that he wasn't even caring to venture that far out. He's like, I can fucking kill whoever I want. Yeah, yeah. Now you're not catching me. That night, he approached her house on foot and threw a concrete block through the plate glass patio door to gain entry. Thinking a car had hit her house... Oh, my gosh. Dolores came running to see what what was going on. Right. And Raider was standing there in her kitchen and handcuffed her. Oh, my gosh. Debegged, um, I've got kids. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. And Raider talked with her and calmed her down and said, you know, he did kind of the same vagrant story that he had told before. You yep. know, I just need money. I'm going to steal your car. Whatever. Yep. Acting as if he was about to leave, Raider removed her handcuffs and tied her up and then strangled her with pantyhose. He said that the two or three minutes it took for her to die fueled his fantasies for years. He put a blanket around her, dragged her to the car, um, threw her in the trunk and dumped her body under a county bridge. Hmm. The following night, he came back to the dumping spot to pose and photograph the body. I think something like 13 days went by before they found this body. Oh my gosh. And again, it wasn't connected to BTK. Yeah. Only four months after this episode, Raider was hired by Park City as a compliance and animal control officer. See, this is the job I remember him yeah. having. Okay. He became a combination dog catcher and local code enforcer. He was now part of the local law enforcement. He gained a varying reputation ranging from efficient and friendly to overzealous and petty, writing citations if lawn exceeded six inches in grass height. Mm -hmm. Um, There were complaints against him, and several people were said to have moved away from Park City due to his um, crazy antics and like the things yeah. that he would write people up for but no complaints ever resulted in disciplinary action because a lo- local officials would usually side with Raider when mm-hmm. many of these complaints escalated by 2004 the investigation of BTK was long cold remember he hadn't communicated with them since like 1978 these murders that he had done in that time since 78 to 2000 to now were not tied to him. Right. But something happened that led Raider to start communicating with local media again. There were two things that were going on. This online article was posted in like the crime, like crime library. Okay. And it said that they believed that BTK was dead or institutionalized. Uh huh. And he was like, How dare you? How dare you? And then this Wichita lawyer was getting ready to publish a book about the hunt for BTK. And he was like, I'm not going to let somebody else tell my story. This is my story. Wow. I'm going to be the one to tell you how it happened. Uh Uh-huh. So in 2004, Raider began a series of 11 communications to the local media. Mm Mm-hmm. In March 2004, the Wichita Eagle received a letter from someone using the return address, Bill Thomas Kilman, BTK. 
The author of the letter claimed that he had murdered Vicki Weggerly on September 16th, 1986, and enclosed photographs of the crime scene and a photocopy of her driver's license, which had been stolen at the time of the crime. So... Remember, th- yeah. her husband had been the one who'd been under suspicion all of this time for her murder. Right. And then now you have somebody who can prove he did it because he has crime scene photos and her driver's license. <sighs> in May 2004, television station KAKE in Wichita received a letter with chapter headings for the BTK story, fake IDs and a word puzzle. Which was supposed to be like his code thing. It was just poorly executed and they couldn't make any sense out of it. I feel like he was trying to do like a Zodiac thing. That's exactly what I was going to say. But hmm, turns out those are a little more complicated than he thought they were. On June 9th, 2004, a package was found taped to a stop sign at the corner of First and Kansas in Wichita. It had graphic descriptions of the Otero murders and a sketch labeled, The Sexual Thrill is My Bill. Ew. In October 2004, a manila envelope was dropped in a UPS in a UPS box in Wichita. It had cards with images of terror and bondage of children on them and a poem threatening the life of lead investigator Lieutenant Ken Landwer. Landwer? Landwer. <laughs> Landwer. <laughs> L-A-N-D-W-E-H-R. Do whatever you can. (laughs) Landwer. In December 2004, Wichita police received another package from the BTK killer. This time, the package was found in Wichita's Murdoch Park. It had the license of Nancy Fox, which was noted as stolen from the crime scene, Mm -hmm. as well as a doll that was symbolically bound at the hands and feet, with a plastic bag tied over its head. In January 2005, Raider attempted to leave a cereal box. Cereal killer. Oh, God, he's so clever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that sound was. (laughs) That was me mocking a cereal killer. In the bed of a pickup truck at a Home Depot in Wichita. But the box was found in the... It was just like a random person's car. You put this in the back of their truck. The person found it and threw it away. Wait, so that was supposed to be some big communication? Yes. This guy was so fucking stupid. Fucking dumb. I mean, clearly he wasn't that dumb. He got away with this for 30 fucking years, but. You know how I get. I know. (laughs) One of the things that has always stood. Maybe I should save this. I'll say, keep going, keep going. Okay. <laughs> it's not that this is great insight or anything, but I'm, I kind of feel like if people don't know how he was caught, then it yeah. might kind of ruin it. Okay. Yeah. Go. So the owner of this truck found this cereal box <laughs> in the trash. Like, not somebody my had, cereal. Yeah, thought somebody had dumped it in the trash or dumped it trash in his truck. So he'd put it in his trash can at home. And then his wife threw a pillow away on top of it. So ultimately they preserved the box by throwing that pillow away. Uh-huh. So days later when like he sees that this stuff has been going on, he's like, wait, maybe there was something to that box. And so he goes and fishes it out. And sure enough, it says BTK on the cover on the front of it. And oh inside of gosh. it, it has all kinds of crazy shit. So surveillance tape of the parking lot from that date, 
revealed a distant figure driving a black Jeep Cherokee, Cherokee <laughs> leaving the box in the pickup. In February, more postcards were sent to KAKE, and another cereal box was left at a rural location, um, and it was found. It contained another bound doll. This time, it was tied to a PVC pipe, Aww. apparently meant to symbolize the murder of 11-year-old Josie Otero. Yeah. The Wichita police were following the FBI's advice. Keep the killer communicating. Mm -hmm. Don't offend him publicly. Don't overexcite him into killing more. How do you not overexcite? I think, like, don't let him know that you're closing in on him. I'm okay. Just try and keep it as it is. Okay. Um, just keep communicating until he makes a mistake. Okay. That mistake was coming soon. In one of the cereal boxes, Raider included a postcard that said, can I communicate with a floppy and not be traced to a computer? Be honest. <laughs> he asked them to print the answer in the classified section of the Wichita Eagle. Mm -hmm. Per his request, and using the code name he asked them to, they posted an answer in the classifieds that said, Rex, it will be okay. On February 16th, 2005, Raider sent a purple 1.44 megabyte Memorex floppy disk to Fox TV affiliate KSAS-TV in Wichita. Detectives wasted little time analyzing this disk and found software on it from Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita mm -hmm. and the name Dennis. So what it was is that there was a deleted file on this disc. It wasn't a fresh disc. It had, had it, it He didn't spring for the extra dollar 50. No, it had a it used to um have a word document saved on it. He had deleted the word document, but there's like this m metadata that's collected yeah. on these discs and that had saved what was deleted or that there was something that had been deleted and that the last what computer had accessed it and who logged into that computer to access it. So it was like Accessed at this church by username Dennis. Okay. So they do a Google search. <laughs> <laughs> and they search the church and they search Dennis. And it comes up that he is their current president. Finally, a crime that I could solve. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so a group of detectives mm -hmm. drive by Raider's house in Park City. And they see... A black Jeep Cherokee parked in the driveway. Hell yeah. Um, Raider was placed under surveillance because now they've got all this circumstantial evidence. Yep. But they need more. They need. That wasn't enough. It wasn't. They. Uh, it wasn't enough. So they obtain a DNA sample of his daughter from her medical records. Whoa, but... I think this is kind of crazy. Doesn't she have to give consent? Apparently not. Apparently, because she was a student at K-State. Okay. And received some medical testing while she was there. They could subpoena those medical tests. Wow. And compare and test that tissue. She had a pap smear. Oh. They took the pap smear... And did a familial DNA test on it. Because 
Kansas State University is a public university. Uh-huh. They had access to that information. They tested the familial DNA, and it matched the DNA from the crime scenes. Whoa. Yeah. <gasps> How weird for her. She said she felt so violated when she found out that's how they um too damn caught him i i mean i agree yes no i i yes yeah i i see that the tiniest bit but in the big picture at the same time too damn bad yeah although it's not her fault her dad did what he did no no but i'm saying like if it if it stops a serial killer Mm -hmm. go ahead and have a look at my pap smear <laughs> if you'd like Kristen's pastor, <laughs> gross. Email us at LGT. Oh, you know what would be really scary if someone did. Oh know. God! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, y'all said you were giving out samples of a pap smear. Oh, God. <laughs> be that same lady who liked Charles Manson. <laughs> <laughs> Included anything in an episode about that? No, I was afraid to talk about it. <laughs> our first love letter. <laughs> yeah, so our first ever Facebook post. This was before Brandy started doing the really cute, like um, you know, collages of pictures. I just did for our first episode a, a really disturbing looking picture of Charles Manson's face. I thought it would be eye catching. It was, <laughs> turns out. <laughs> and uh, we got a fan. Uh, uh, not our fan. <laughs> no, no, a fan of, a you're fan right. of Charles Manson. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we call a learning experience That is, that was a learning experience. <laughs> like, okay, maybe we need to make these posts a little cuter. Yeah. Maybe um, we're going to bring some bad people out of the woodwork. That's right. <laughs> anyway. Okay, back to back to BTK. Oh, please, yes. Let's get serious. Back to the pap. <laughs> Gross. So on February 25th, 2005, Raider left his office to eat lunch at home, mm-hmm. as he usually did. Okay. He's driving down the road, mm-hmm. and he sees a police car. And then he sees another police car. Uh-oh. And then he sees another police car. <laughs> and then he realizes that he is totally surrounded <laughs> by police. Oh, I'd love to see a look on his <laughs> big dumb face. He surrendered quietly mm-hmm. and was led to a waiting police car, handcuffed, obviously. He was then taken to an interrogation room. And at first he wouldn't say much at all about the crimes. They were like... You know, do you know why you're here? And he's like, I have a suspicion. <laughs> God. But he kind of just played dumb. Uh-huh. And then they said, we traced your computer disk. Mm-hmm. We have your DNA. Mm-hmm. It's a match. We don't really need you to yeah. talk. <laughs> and then, so then he started to talk. Yeah. In fact, he wouldn't stop talking. Oh, God. In a stunning 30-hour confession. What? 30 hours, he rambled on endlessly about his crimes as though he was proudly reciting his achievements. Yep. Oh, yeah. 
Not the least bit surprising. No. Never before known details of all of his crimes, his methods, the way his mind worked, came out. The way his mind worked? (laughs) How does your mind work? (laughs) (laughs) During interrogations, Raider, quote, couldn't get over the fact that Landwar had lied to him. (laughs) He had trusted him. Oh. Raider asked, I need to ask you, how come you lied to me? How come you lied to me? Because we were trying to catch a serial killer. And Landwar answered, because I was trying to catch you. Duh! Duh! What? What in kind the of end, question is that? Yeah, in the end, Raiders trust in Land War. <laughs> I really feel terrible. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Look, great job catching him. <laughs> sorry yeah, about your sorry last about name. your last name. So he had trusted him, and <laughs> obviously that didn't work out well for him. Raider blamed the disc, and he was quoted as saying, "The floppy did me in." <laughs> Sadly, I mean, is there anything about tone? I want to picture it. The floppy did me in. The floppy did me in. (laughs) On February 28th, 2005, Raider was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. Mm -hmm. On March 1st, Raider's bail was set at $10 million, and a public defender was appointed to represent him. Oh, God. Dennis Rader's trial on the 10 counts of first-degree murder was set for June 27, 2005. As the date approached, with no news of postponement, speculation erupted about what, what Rader was up to. It became apparent that he was going to use this appearance to formally plead guilty. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. Yeah. The event turned into a dramatic courtroom confession as Judge Waller began to quiz Rader over some of the details of his crime. Before millions of viewers watching live coverage on Kansas TV stations, on court TV, and worldwide on the internet, Raider calmly revealed the grisly details of his murders from his own perspective, talking about strangulations, hit kits, Factor X, etc., as if they were all an everyday thing. Mm-hmm. You can watch this confession a huge portion of it. There's like a 45 minute video avail- like easily available on YouTube. Yeah. Where he just like walks through each of these murders. And it, he explains it so calmly and so methodically. It is mm-hmm. horrifying. Mm-hmm. But exactly what you would expect out of a psychopath. You know, looking back to that documentary uh-huh. that I watched, the thing I remember about it was when he talked about these crimes, these horrible crimes, mm-hmm. he had no emotion. The one time he showed emotion mm-hmm. was toward the very end, mm-hmm. after they'd caught him, obviously, and he mm-hmm. was talking about what this meant for him. Mm-hmm. And I want to say he got a little choked up. Do you remember this? Do you know what about I'm talking about? About his dog? No. Oh. No, about how he wouldn't get to go and just have a cheeseburger Oh yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that's part of that's part of the whole statement. Like I'm not gonna, I can't have a cheeseburger anymore. I'll miss you know spending time with my dog. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No words. Yeah. What the hell is that about? Yes. Well, obviously, obviously we know yes, what it's about. We know what it's about. Yes. Yeah. He only feels for himself. Yeah. Yeah. I really, I mean, it's super creepy to watch, but it's worth a watch if you want to see how this guy's mind worked. Mm. It's super creepy. Prosecutors, though, were like waiting for their opportunity because they were worried that there would be that there was some kind of opportunity for leniency here because it was clear that Raider was saying he didn't have complete control over himself when he committed these crimes. Okay, because Factor X. Yes, because Factor X, which he called a demon. He believed that he was possessed by demons when Factor X came Mm -hmm. out. And so at the sentencing hearing on October 17th and 18th, 2005, prosecutors finally had their turn to present some of the accumulated evidence against Raider in open court. So they were just, they were like, we just need to put this stuff out there because in case you're up there, judge, thinking you're going to maybe go a little soft on him because maybe he didn't have complete control over himself. On the off chance that this judge is like, wait, you're not going to be able to have a cheeseburger? Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. This presentation was designed to show that Raider should be sentenced to the maximum permitted by law, which amounted to a minimum of 175 years to life in prison. Mm-hmm. They wanted him, obviously, to never be eligible to walk the streets again. Uh, yeah, no kidding. No shit. <laughs> And Judge Greg Waller listened patiently to two full days of testimony. Individual detectives representing the cases of the Oteros, Catherine Bright, Shirley Vian, Nancy Fox, Maureen Hedge, Vicki Weggerly, and Dolores Davis all gave statements illustrated with grim crime scene and autopsy photos in front of a packed courtroom and another large international television audience. I remember so clearly watching this stuff on TV. I remember being at my kitchen table with a print copy of the newspaper, mm-hmm. which shows how long ago this was. <laughs> After their testimony was completed, members of the victim's family were asked to deliver victim impact statements. Mm-hmm. Moving statements were given from Carmen Montoya, who was one of the Otero children, yeah. and Charlie Otero, Kevin Bright, the surviving victim. Of oh, BTK. yes. Yeah, the brother. Yes. Steve Relford and Richard Vian, who Steve was, I believe, Shirley's son, maybe. And then I don't know for sure. <laughs> he was a person. Um, and then Richard was obviously related to her in some way because he has the same last name. <laughs> um, Fred Fox was the brother of Nancy Fox and her sister, Beverly Plapp both made statements. Rod Hook, who was the son-in-law of Marine Hedge, uh, made a statement. Bill Weggerly and his daughter Stephanie made statements. And then also Dolores Davis's son, Jeff, and her daughter Laurel made statements as well. So I've spent so much time talking about the killer that I want to just read a couple of yeah, like, statements from the victim, like these victim impact statements, because yeah. we focus so much. I feel like on the perpetrators of crimes all the time that I don't think all the time these victims get to be heard. Yeah. And even, I mean, these people were so much victims because they lost these family members. And for many of these people for years, didn't even know 
had done it, how yeah. it had been done, how their family had been singled out, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's whatever. bad enough when someone dies from a heart attack or oh, you know, yeah. some kind of more traditional yeah. way. Yeah. So this is a portion of Carmen Montoya's statement. So she was one of the, she was the daughter of um, the Oteros. Right. She said, I will not address you as Mr. Raider. Mr. is a word of respect, as in, Mr., can you help me? Not Mr., are you going to kill me? Mm. BTK is how you want to be known, and I will not give you that satisfaction. Raider is an appropriate name for you, as in one who invades a surprise attack that has nothing to be proud of. You are such a coward. Raider, you not only affected my life, but you took away the joy of the ultimate grandparents, aunt and uncle relationships my parents, or I'm sorry, my children deserve. My children, my grandchildren, my nieces and nephews will be told of their family with love. You see, in my world, family is everything. Just recently, I realized that I could not remember my mother's voice. It was a painful discovery. But as I put my thoughts on paper, it comes to me. I am my mother's voice, and I know we've been heard. Hmm. And then Bill Weggerly spoke. And Bill Weggerly, you know, he for years was living under suspicion that he was the one who killed his wife. Yeah. So not only is he going through this horrible grieving process yeah. of having his wife murdered, people think he did it. Yeah. Did he ever have his kids taken away? Mm-mm. Okay. Okay. But the cloud of suspicion yeah. is just always there. Yeah. Okay. He said, Dennis Rader killed my wife in 1986. The past couple days, the courts, the news media, the general public knows what kind of person he is. The vicious, cruel individual he is. It's all in the light now. There's no punishment that you can exact upon him that will satisfy our needs. We can just ask the court to bestow upon him the most that you can. And hopefully, we will not have to deal with him or see him or hear from him ever again. Yeah. And then the last one I'm going to share is from Jeffrey Davis, who was the son of Dolores Davis, so the final victim. Okay. For the last 5,326 days, I have wondered what it would be like to confront the walking cesspool that took my mother's precious life. Throughout that time, I always envisioned this day as being one for avenging the past. I could think of nothing but savoring the bittersweet taste of revenge as justice is served upon this social sewage here before us today. Wow. Now that the time has arrived, I've determined that for the sake of our innocent victims and their loving families and friends with us here today, for me, this will be a day of celebration, not retribution. If my focus were hatred, I would stare down at you and call you a demon. If I were cynical, I would remind you, I would remind this court that you would return to your murderous ways in a heartbeat, if given the opportunity. If I were to sink to your level, I would say that this world would have been much better off had your mother aborted your demon soul. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If I had your sadistic nature, I would delight in the pain you feel now in realizing that your own arrogance and ego got you caught. That if you would have kept your big mouth shut, you'd still be a free man today, able to eat that pizza and walk your dog Dudley. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I wanted revenge, 
I would pray that you develop a lingering illness from which you suffer from many, many years before you ultimately choke to death one lonely night on your own vomit. (laughs) (laughs) But I won't rain these curses down upon you because you're not smart enough to understand most of the words I would use anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I really like this guy. So good. (laughs) As of today, you no longer exist. Today, the focus finally moves out from under your depraved shadow of hell's darkness into the light of your victims and their families. Today, we also celebrate with this community the relief in knowing that we will never again be terrorized by a monster's demented fantasies. Today, we will each silently remember a father, a brother, a wife, a mother, a sister, a daughter, a grandmother, all those we love so deeply and miss so dearly still. From this point on, we declare our independence from the tyranny of your actions. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that was so good. Yes. We declare our independence from the tyranny of your actions. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. After the victim impact statements, Raider was then permitted to give his own statement. He rambled on for over 20 minutes, God. delivering a semi-apology to mm-hmm. everyone, and but mostly speaking about himself. Of course. It took on the air of someone giving, like, an acceptance speech. Oh, my God. Or, oh, my God. Or a speech to, like, a church group. Uh-huh. Thanking all the people who had helped him recently, thanking his lawyers and and all kinds of I bet his lawyers were like, nah, we're yeah. good. So I read through this transcript uh-huh. of this last night. The it's disgusting. And the worst part, and I don't know how I could have been the victim's families in court and hear this. The worst part is that. He goes through each of his victims and he lists something he had in common with them. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. So he's like, Joseph Oturo, he had a daughter. I have a daughter. This person grew up on a farm. My grandparents had a farm that I spent so much time on. I mean, he went through each of his victims and did that. His point being I have no fucking clue. Disgusting. Disgusting. Yep. Finally, at the end of the proceedings on August 18th, Judge Waller sentenced Dennis Rader to the maximum sentence permitted by law, a minimum of 175 years in prison. He will not be eligible for parole until 2180. So he will die in prison. He is in solitary confinement for his own protection. Mm -hmm. He um, spends 23 hours a day. In a cell. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some civil suits that took place by the families afterwards. And basically, the goal of those were to keep him from ever being able to make money off Good. of his story. Good. And so, yeah. So basically, they all settled. They all ended up getting judgments for millions of dollars, uh-huh. which means that if he ever sold his story, that money would go to those people. He would Good. never be able to get Good. a dime of it. Yeah. Yeah. His wife and children never had any inkling yeah of who he was or what he was doing his wife on the day he was arrested mm-hmm. had lunch set out on the table waiting for him to come home right when she got a call 
that he'd been arrested and that she needed to come speak to the police. She left that home, never entered it again. (gasps) Wow. Yes. Wow. The city of Wichita ended up buying the house and demolishing it to keep like from. Yeah. Freaks like us from mm -hmm. coming around. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, His daughter, like in the last like four years or so, has spoken out publicly about what it was like to go through that and be her, his daughter and struggle with how you reconcile what you thought was a good dad. Yeah. And uh, now you realize some kind of monster and she's actually writing a book about it. It comes out next year. Will she get to keep all the proceeds? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. She has said that she has forgiven her father, Uh but that she did that for her because she found that she was, Spending so much of her life. Re-examining every little thing? Yep. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yep. So that's BTK. Ugh. That was terrible. It was fucking terrible. <laughs> How you been lately? <laughs> I'll tell you. So I, f- I finished this up late last night. Yeah. And then I went and laid in bed and I was like, oh my God, I feel terrible right now. <laughs> You know, the thing, okay, I'll say this now. The thing that always struck me about this Mm -hmm. was they had this profile on Mm -hmm. BTK. They thought he was extremely intelligent. Yep. So they were, I mean, they were looking in the totally wrong direction. They thought he was highly intelligent. And then all of a sudden, he asks them this question. Yeah. And he trusts them. He just trusts them. Tell him yes. Okay, be honest. Yeah, don't you lie to me. <laughs> and then, yeah, he could not get over the fact that they had lied to him. It's all about him. Yeah. 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 Why would you want to catch a murderer? Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So now it's on me to bring us up. Oh, my God, please. (laughs) I had a really hard time finding a case because I was like, okay, how do I lift things up from I know you were like, you text me and you're like, are you going to do what are you doing this week? Is it a heavy one? And I text back, I'm doing BCK. Is that heavy? So fast forward to me, you know, Googling funny lawsuits, Uh, hilarious lawsuits with an upbeat ending. I didn't really come up with much, but I did find this story that I had never heard before. So did you know that the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre at one point? Um, I don't think so. You're so good at trivia. You probably didn't know. Well, 
No, I mean, I think there's like a weird like Tom Hanks movie about it. Like, is really? it? A, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a Nicolas Cage movie. Sounds like a Nicolas Cage movie. <laughs> I don't I felt like maybe it was one of like the uh, Dan Brown book ones, like oh, Angels like and Demons or, or something, Da Vinci Code. I, uh, I've never actually seen either of those. I've never seen either. <laughs> and so this could be one of those things where everyone knows this story and we are just the two Not dummies us. who didn't read the books, didn't watch the movies. I hate Tom Hanks. <laughs> Such a popular opinion. <laughs> Just kidding. I love Tom Hanks. Nickelback and Tom Hanks. I love <laughs> The look on your face when I cannot said- get enough Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people feel that way. Man. Oh, God. Okay. For the record, can't stand Nickelback. Wow, you're so into music, you couldn't even let people believe that know. for a second. Could not. Okay. I got some. I'm trying to keep my street cred up. Okay, you ready to learn? Is the Constitution on the back of the book? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't know that the U.S. Constitution is on the back of the Mona Lisa. <laughs> Tell your friends; they're going to think you are so smart. Okay, so picture it. Tuesday. Why are you looking at me with creepy eyes? <laughs> I'm giving you my best Dennis Rader stare. <laughs> wow, you're such a good listener, Oh my Brandy. God, I was I seriously had a heart attack earlier when Norman came to the door, so I was well, trying yeah. to make you feel creep, creeped out, too. Okay, well. Did it work? Yes. <laughs> Very good job, Brandy. Okay, Tuesday, August 22nd, 1911. Man, I've got to pep us up. Yeah. Just so you know, there are no murders in this story. Oh, thank God. Yeah, we had enough in your story. We have met the murder quota for this episode. (laughs) Big time. (laughs) So Tuesday, August August 22nd, 1911, at the Louvre, Paris's most famous art museum. I thought it was pronounced Louvre. (laughs) If you love... Have I been pronouncing it wrong this whole time? Why is my face red? (laughs) I gotta say... If you enjoy Midwest pronunciations of French words, <laughs> buckle up. This is the podcast for you. When I rehearsed... Oh, wait, hold on. I gotta buckle oh, my seatbelt. Oh, God, belt. don't. Click, don't. No, I, I, I tried to rehearse this a little. It's gonna be so bad. I can't wait. I'm I didn't so even excited. take French in high school. So, like, I don't even have the slightest... I can say buffet without the tea. <laughs> And that's my French. Woo! So, at the Louvre, which was <laughs> Paris's most famous art museum, an artist named Louis Barou mm-hmm. arrives. He has this vision for his next painting. He wants to paint a young woman doing her hair with the Mona Lisa in the background. Mm. So, first things first, he needs to paint his take on the Mona Lisa. So, he goes to where the Mona Lisa normally is but there's just an empty space on the wall. And he is pissed. <laughs> he goes to the security guard. He's like, where's the Mona Lisa? Security guard, not one bit concerned. He's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the museum photographer has it. Sometimes he takes pictures to catalog things, do postcards. I don't know. Maybe someone important in the museum has it. They wanted it for a little while. Who knows? Who knows? 
That is not good enough for Louis. He's got this vision for the painting. So the guard is like, okay, be cool. I'll look for it. Okay. Is he expecting to be able to set up his fucking easel in the Louvre and Apparently. paint? Oh, 1911. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that okay. was what he was planning to do that day. Okay. So the guard starts asking other people, and everyone's pretty calm. But after a while, they're like, I don't have it. Do you have it? <laughs> I don't know. Does he have it? Oh, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> pretty soon they're like, oh, no. The it's Mona missing. Lisa is gone. Oh, shit. Oh, shit, indeed. At 11 a.m., they call the police. They seal off the museum. They tell people, look, there's been a water leak. We need you to leave. Get out of here. We're closing early. Sixty police inspectors arrive on the scene. They're interviewing everyone. Fairly quickly, they realize there was no break-in. There's no, like, dead or injured security yeah. guard. No one's tied up in a closet. Yeah, and, like, his know? uniform's missing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So this can only mean one thing. The Mona Lisa was stolen in a very brazen way, probably with people around, (sighs) probably in broad daylight. Oh my gosh. This was shocking. Sort of. I raised my eyebrow, but I realized that that the people couldn't hear that. (laughs) I'm intrigued. Tell me more. That's what my eyebrow said. No, thank you. I need you to interpret common facial expressions for me. I'm also a psycho. <laughs> so here's the thing. People kind of knew that security at the Louvre was like non-existent. A few months prior, a reporter spent the night at the Louvre what? just to prove he could. <laughs> oh my Just to God. be like, here's how little they're paying attention. I stayed there overnight. I could have done anything. Okay. Sometimes Did he touch the Mona Lisa? I'm sure he did. I would touch every painting. Just be like, touched it. Touched it. Oh, no, he stopped me. You would like spoon a statue? No, Kristen. Oh, too far. Yes. You just go. I'm not going to touch the penis, the stone penis. (laughs) You brought that up. I'm talking about cuddling. You're talking about fondling. <laughs> All right. Never let Brandy into a museum. <laughs> so sometimes minor pieces, like little statues, mm-hmm. would go missing. And every now and then, the Louvre would get threats from people who said they're going to come in and steal artwork. Did this upset or worry the leadership at the Louvre? Not so much. They, they weren't too concerned about the missing pieces. I know, I know, this is crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. So you might be thinking, which is what I was thinking, um, that maybe it's the early 1900s, maybe that's just how museums were back then, maybe it was just a different time. I don't think it was, or it wouldn't have all this amazing art from <laughs> hundreds of years ago, Kristen. You're smarter than I am. People <laughs> <laughs> are just walking out. <laughs> So here's the thing. At a lot of prominent museums in that time period, the art was, of course, bolted yeah. to the walls. You couldn't just go up and take a painting off a wall. <laughs> At the Louvre, you could. <laughs> <laughs> so that being said, the Louvre had a ton of security guards. 
tons. Mm -hmm. And they were all soldiers who'd been sent to the Louvre by the War Department. Wow. I know. Sounds kind of intimidating, right? What are you thinking right now? Um, That that's a bunch of people who don't care about being a security guard at the Louvre? You are good. (laughs) You are very good. (laughs) So, turns out, the type of soldier who got assigned to the Louvre (laughs) was not your best soldier. (laughs) So, um, they tended to be not not highly skilled. Uh, A lot of them were just waiting to retire. Some of them were drunk. A lot of them loved to nap on the job. Mm -hmm. I'm sure some were good, too. But most were not. (laughs) So they had these security guards, but they mostly sucked. And people knew it. Yeah. Here's an example of security at the Louvre. Around this time, two people walked up to famous paintings Mm -hmm. and just slashed them. Just slashed them with a knife. So... One newspaper at the time made this suggestion. For the safeguarding of the precious objects, the public is requested to wake the guards if they are found to be asleep. (laughs) (laughs) If you have to put that out there, it's time to get some new fucking guards. So that was, I mean, they're obviously kidding around, but like, it was just well known that... Security at the Louvre sucked. Yikes. Rest assured, though, on that Tuesday when the Mona Lisa went missing, everyone was wide awake. Yeah. (laughs) So investigators determined that it had to have been taken the day before when the museum was closed to the public on Monday. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like it narrows things down a lot. And it does. But the thing is, there were always a ton of workers at the museums. They'd move stuff around, they'd clean it, they'd photograph it, they'd do maintenance on it. How much maintenance does this thing need? Um, I have no idea. <laughs> Here's how I clean things. It's not very big. <laughs> it's not like, you know, one week they have to clean like a tiny section of it and then... Well, you don't just spray it with Pledge, you know, it's got... <laughs> I'm sure it's a it's a time consuming process. But anyway, so here's the thing. There's tons of workers there on Monday. Not tons of security guards. Mm-hmm. There are 10 security guards in the whole And the Louvre is huge. huge. Yeah. Huge. Have you been? No, I wish. Have no, you been? No. Damn mm-hmm. it. Now we have to go. <laughs> That's right. They won't let us in though because they will have heard our pronunciation of these words. <laughs> <laughs> so there were 10 security guards on duty in the whole Louvre. Oh, my gosh. None of them were guarding the most important art in the museum. Who's to say that the Mona Lisa is the most important art in the entire Louvre? Oh, it wasn't. Oh. But it's in this big gallery. And mm-hmm. so it was in part of a gallery where they had the most important stuff. So you'd think they would have had a guard. You would think. No. <laughs> Busy. (laughs) Busy now. Napping. So the police are like, well, this isn't good. (laughs) The painting was taken more than 24 hours ago. Oh, gosh. No one really remembers who was here yesterday. We're not even totally sure what time of day it was taken. This is bad. But the police keep talking to people, and they keep searching the museum for clues. And that's when they find the Mona Lisa's frame in a small staircase. <gasps> mm-hmm. She's not in it. <laughs> no. She's taken off. 
So she's rolled up in Nick Nicholas Cage's backpack. Funny you should mention that. Because <laughs> Nicholas Cage was there. No. <laughs> so the thief had taken the painting, obviously, mm-hmm. out of the frame, but it was on wood. So you couldn't just like it's not oh. something that you can easily like fold up and put into your pocket. Uh, so they're like, this this person must have been fairly sophisticated, or I mean, yeah, ballsy is all get out. I don't know. Cause, I mean, the Mona Lisa really isn't small. I think it's like two by two, so it's not like you can like hide it. No, up under your shirt. Anyway, by that night, it made the evening papers. This was horrible. First. Because this was a very important piece of art. Yeah. Second, because police had no idea who could have yeah. done it. Third, because it had been really easy to take. Yeah. That day, the director of the Louvre resigned. Uh, the French government was very upset. The public was upset. The media was covering the hell out of this. Oh, yeah. It became international news. And there was a ton of speculation. Did someone take it to sell it? God forbid, did someone take it to destroy it? Was this some weirdo? Uh, Did someone take it just to have it for themselves? So people thought that maybe it was like some rich American had hired someone to take Dirty Americans. Yeah. J.P. Morgan was the one that was really (laughs) suspected. Yeah. Um, Also, they suspected Germans because, you know, there was a lot of anti-German sentiment. I mean, people were pointing fingers. Mm Mm-hmm. When you point a finger, Kristen, mm-hmm. just remember, there's three pointing right back at you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I did take the Mona Lisa. <laughs> Turns out the Louvre has learned nothing from this. It's still, you just walk right up, you take it. And boy, does it look great in your bathroom. <laughs> Took down the jar of Q-tips and the candle, put up the Mona Lisa. I just want people to know that I'm a big deal and I appreciate fine art. So then investigators got lucky. The thief left a fingerprint on the Mona Lisa's frame. Mm. (laughs) What the hell was that? I have no idea. (laughs) This is the episode where we make noises we've never made before. To me, that noise was like, oh, I've heard of fingerprints before. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> so back then, they kept pretty good records on anyone with a criminal past. So um, they compared the print with the people they had on file. Couldn't find a match. That's what one of the documentaries said. I can't imagine they went through all their... All whatever. the fingerprints? Yeah, I'm... You just got, like, one guy with a magnifying glass matching fingerprints? I am calling bullshit on that, but, you know, whatever. Whatever. So, that didn't work out. But police still had a pretty good hunch about who could have done this. They used common sense. They were like, all right, it happened on a Monday. No one really remembers any strangers walking around. This was an inside job. So they interviewed hundreds of workers. But the interviews went nowhere. They fingerprinted all of them, couldn't find a match. So they're like, (laughs) maybe we're wrong. Maybe this wasn't an inside job, which means like now our suspects are everyone in the world. Yes. (laughs) So a month goes by. Suddenly they get some new suspects. 
Get ready to shit your pants. Oh, God. Hold on. Let me put on my rubber pants. (laughs) I always travel with them just in case. Take off those leather ones you're wearing. (laughs) So one of the suspects was a French poet named... Do it. Guillaume... Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Named Guillaume Apollinaire. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, France. We we have like one. We have two French listeners, and they're gonna be so pissed. <laughs> they're like they're even dumber than I thought they were. <laughs> the other was a young, little-known artist named Pablo Picasso. Pablo Picasso. He was a suspect. Oh a my prime gosh! Suspect. I know. I know. Aren't you glad you put on those latex pants? Rubber. Rubber, excuse me. I'm allergic to latex. No, you're not. No, I'm not. <laughs> what a weird thing to lie about. <laughs> okay. So these two were friends, and they had this other friend. How dare you accuse me of not being allergic to latex, Kristen? <laughs> I apologize, Brandy. Next time, I'll let you just tell all kinds of lies. <laughs> what are you allergic to, really? Uh, Percocet. That's it. <laughs> Percocet. Molly Percocet. Okay, sorry. <laughs> How do you know that you're allergic to Percocet? They put me on it after I had surgery one time and I had a horrible allergic reaction. Oh, well, that'll do it. <laughs> Okay, now back to Pablo Picasso. Okay. (laughs) Everybody's got down my allergies? Great. Moving on. (laughs) Also, tree pollen. (laughs) So if anyone wants to come after you, they just like... (laughs) Tree pollen and Percocet. (laughs) Throw it at you. Okay, so... um, Apollinaire (laughs) and Pablo Picasso. Love the name Pablo Picasso. That one's super easy. Got that one down. These two were friends, and they had this other friend who stole some small statues from the Louvre. Mm. So Apollinaire knew that they were stolen, but bought them off the friend anyway, and gave one to Picasso. Mm -hmm. And he didn't tell him, oh, this is stolen. Yeah. Uh, He's just like, hey, here, take this. So Picasso has no idea this is stolen. Although I read something somewhere that said on the bottom of the statues, it said property of the Louvre. So, um, you know, come on. Uh, right next to the Maiden China. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they've got these statues, and that's all well and good until the Mona Lisa goes missing. And all of a sudden, Apollinaire is like, oh, shit. They're going to find out that I have this stolen stuff from the Louvre, and then they're going to think that I stole the Mona Lisa, too. This is bad. He goes to Picasso. Picasso, buddy, remember that gift I gave you? It's kind of stolen from the Louvre. Oh, my gosh. Let's trash these statues and pretend this never happened. Picasso's like, no way. We're <laughs> not throwing away art. Mm-hmm. You need to just go to the police and be honest. Yeah. So it's a little clear what, uh, it's a little unclear. <laughs> it's super clear what it's happens super next. clear. So, so let me try and break it down for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little 
it's super clear. Let me mess this up a little bit. No, it's a little unclear what happened from here. One of the documentaries I watched said that Apollinaire confessed. An article I read said that the original thief went to the press and basically spilled the beans. Either way, the police catch wind of the whole thing. And when they question Picasso about it, Picasso's like, Apollinaire who? <laughs> uh, never met the fellow. Don't know him. Uh, that that was a pretty obvious How's that lie. that strategy work out for him? <laughs> not great. Not great. Um, so Picasso and Apollinaire become the number one suspects in this heist of the Mona Lisa. Crazy. So according to an, art, an article I read, they actually went to trial. Neither of the documentaries mentioned that they went on trial, but this is a court podcast, so at the trial, Picasso <laughs> cried like a baby. So the article talked about how Picasso was always like super macho and really yeah. played into that, but dude was blubbering. Oh, gosh. Because he was being threatened with deportation, <gasps> and he really didn't want to be de- deported, and he didn't do anything wrong. Yeah, Apollinaire confessed... He, he, Huh? Accepted stolen goods. That is a crime, Kristen. But he claimed he didn't know they were stolen. Again, if there was a stamp on the bottom, <laughs> Picasso, my dude. Yeah, my I, dude. Don't, I don't know. <laughs> so in the in the end, the judge threw the case out. Yeah. There was no evidence on them. It didn't make any sense. Gotcha. Two years go by. The Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa's still missing? Yes. Yes, for two years. Oh, my gosh. All those people that were showing up at the Louvre... Yep. Who hadn't checked their paper. <laughs> <laughs> Had no access yeah. to the news. All the while, the police, the general public, people in the art world, they're all thinking this was pulled off by a sophisticated criminal with an appreciation for art. Yeah. But they had no idea who it could be. Then, on November 29th, 1913 an Italian art dealer gets a really weird letter in the mail. It's postmarked from France. The writer we says... We come from France. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was a conehead. Oh, my God. <laughs> so this dude with a big conehead shows up. <laughs> no, so the writer says he's selling the Mona Lisa. Um, doesn't mention... Okay, Mo- here's the deal. Uh-huh. It's not a well thought through plan because once you have the Mona Lisa, if you're trying to steal it to sell it, how the fuck are you going to sell it? Black market. No, because anybody <laughs> who then buys it can't display it anywhere. Which would mean it would have to be go to like a J.P. Morgan or like somebody who has a ton of money and like a, a little hidey vault. hold. Yeah, where he just goes and he's like, look at my <laughs> treasures. <laughs> look at my treasures. <laughs> Okay, continue. Sorry. Black gets a letter. I'm selling the Mona Lisa. He doesn't mention money. You look so angry right now. I just think that it's so dumb if you're stealing a famous work of art with the intention of selling it. You're a fucking idiot. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, it's kind of like... I mean, it's kind of like drugs. No, you take the drugs, Kristen. (laughs) You don't display the drugs. No. <laughs> nobody's making, nobody's displaying their drugs on the wall in their home. It's nothing like drugs. <laughs> okay, fine. Nobody's ingesting the Mona Lisa trying to get high off of it. <laughs> there was a lot of lead paint involved. 
you know what? Next time you come over, I'm just going to have like a bottle of ibuprofen taped to the wall. <laughs> like some people do display their dress. <laughs> That's all you can come up with ibuprofen. That's the hardest drug. <laughs> Keep pissing me off. I'll put up some Percocet. <laughs> Okay, so this guy gets a strange letter in the mail. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) The look on your face. Okay. I mean, I've just, I've heard of some dumb crimes, but. So you are publicly saying you will not be heading to the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art and stealing the Van Goghs off the wall. No, I will not, because what the fuck am I going to do with them then? (laughs) I'd give you 20 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) So. The writer doesn't mention money, mm-hmm. but he does say he's poor. And he says specifically he wants to get the painting back in Italy. The letter is signed, Leonardo. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy who received this letter was basically the most important art dealer in Florence. He was an expert in Italian art. He regularly placed ads in the newspaper saying that he wanted to buy Italian art. He obviously thought this letter was a joke. Yeah. He almost threw it away. But then his friend was like, "Mm, maybe you should check it out. Yeah. So he writes back and he's like, all right, Leonardo, you got the Mona Lisa. Bring it to Florence. Mm -hmm. And Leonardo does. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) By this point, at Leonardo's request, the art dealer has agreed to pay 500,000 lira for the painting, which is about 2.9 million in today's money. Mm-hmm. I know how much you like. I do. I like when it's adjusted for inflation. <laughs> <laughs> that was a double one because he had to convert it to U.S. dollars and then adjust for inflation. I'm going to be honest. The documentary did it. Shh, don't tell people. I did it myself. <laughs> if I did it myself, it'd probably be wrong. But since the documentary did it, I think we can trust it. So they meet up in this crappy hotel. Leonardo opens up a trunk, pulls out a false bottom, and brings out what appears to be the Mona Lisa. The art dealer's like, whoa. He takes out a photo of the Mona Lisa. And you know how the Mona Lisa has kind of like a crackled look to it? That's how the oil paint has settled or whatever. They hold the photo up to the painting, and they're looking to see, do the cracks match up? Mm -hmm. And they do. So they're like, whoa, this is the honest-to-God Mona Lisa in this crappy hotel. The art dealer tells Leonardo a lie. He's like, thank you so much. Um, We're definitely going to take this to the Uffizi, (laughs) which is definitely an Italian art museum. Definitely not the way you pronounce it. (laughs) So the art dealer and his buddies start to leave the hotel with this painting. But the concierge at this hotel is like, whoa, 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 whoa. What what do you have there? Is that one of our our paintings from the wall? (laughs) And so these guys are like, oh, no. Oh, no. We're just trying to get this very famous painting out of here undetected and into the right hands. And we've been stopped by the concierge. Mm -hmm. But the concierge is insistent. So they show him the Mona Lisa. And the dude's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's not one of ours. Doesn't even (laughs) recognize it. Has no idea what he's looking at. Oh, my gosh. So they skedaddle. 
They call the police. They're like, go arrest that dude in that hotel. He stole the Mona Lisa. Uh-huh. So police arrested Vincenzo Perugia. <laughs> that was good. Thank you. It sounded kind of good. It sounded good. Is it all about confidence? Is yeah. I think, okay. yeah, you just kind of, I love how you like lean shoulder first and boobs pop, out when you say. your head yeah. back a little bit. <laughs> you didn't mention my boobs. I don't know why. <laughs> so Perugia is a former Louvre employee mm. and he has a criminal record. <gasps> Does the fingerprint match? More on that in a minute. (laughs) I feel like if we were super organized, then we'd go into like a sponsored bit. Yeah. More on that in a minute. Boom. And now, a word from our sponsor, thegaminghistorian.com. That's all you get, Norm. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) So at trial, we get the full story. Yeah. Here we go. I'm in it. Perugia was from Italy, he moved to France for work. Well, to find work. But he faced a ton of discrimination from the French people. Apparently they called him Macaroni. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes they called him... Did they stick him in a sack? And called him Macaroni. (laughs) No, they called him Macaroni, and sometimes they called him Dirty Macaroni. No! (laughs) (laughs) He did not appreciate that Mm, one bit. Man... So, remember how I told you that some people went to the Louvre and slashed the famous paintings? Mm -hmm. Well, after that happened, the Louvre was like, we should really cover these things with some glass. Mm -hmm. So, Perugia was part of the team hired by the Louvre to put glass over the paintings. One of his jobs was was to install the glass covering over the Mona Lisa. Mm. Which could explain why his fingerprint was on the frame. Oh, that's a good point. Anyway. I mean, it doesn't explain why he would have it. Yeah. <laughs> How about the fact that he stole it? <laughs> so Perugia said that the Mona Lisa had a serious effect on him. It ate away at him that this incredible painting from the Italian Renaissance was hanging oh, in Oh, so France. he admits that he stole it? Oh, yeah. Oh, all right. I take back my statement. Sorry, I was trying to... You were kind of into the mystery I was! There's more twists and turns. Oh, can't wait. Don't worry. Hold on. I almost unbuckled my seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs> the plane is still taxing. Okay. You got Keep it. Keep that belt on. Okay. <clears throat> so it's this incredible painting from an Italian painter from the Italian Renaissance, and it's hanging in fucking France. He just can't stand it. And they're calling him Dirty Macaroni. <laughs> He starts asking people, why is this in France? Then he starts to learn about how Napoleon would take works of art from countries he conquered. Mm -hmm. Well, now he's just double pissed. France had no right to the Mona Lisa, and yet there it sat. (laughs) So he decided to steal it. For the record, I think da Vinci actually gave the Mona Lisa to France, like... I don't think it was part of the Napoleon... But anyway, Perugia didn't know that, didn't care about that. Okay. So here we go. Here's how he did it. That Monday, when the museum was closed, he dressed as a workman. He went into a side door in the museum, which was open. Yeah. (laughs) Why why would it not be? (laughs) Went to the area where he knew the Mona Lisa would be, took it off the wall, 
walks out of the room, goes to the small staircase. He takes the frame off the painting. He was the one who put it on there, so he could take it off yeah. really quickly. Leaves the frame and glass in the staircase. Takes the Mona Lisa. Covers it, probably with his smock. Mm-hmm. Why did I say with that? smock. <laughs> I feel like I'm having allergy issues. <laughs> Smock, smock. <laughs> Sorry. That's the sound of everyone hitting pause and never listening to this podcast again. <laughs> Fuck this thing. <laughs> Let me get something to drink here. Oh. I'm now drinking from all three of my beverages. Oh my gosh. So he takes the Mona Lisa. He hides it in his... Huh? No, no, he, yeah, he covers it with his smock. <laughs> Beautifully said. <laughs> You're so worried about your pronunciation of the French. I don't even have the English down. <laughs> so he goes to the nearest door, but it's locked. Hmm. So he starts unscrewing the doorknob. Then someone comes up behind him. He turns. He thinks he's screwed, but he recognizes the guy. It's a former coworker. Mm-hmm. So Perugia is like, "Some idiot locked this door," and the guy's like, "Don't worry, I've got a key. Unlocks." <laughs> so Perugia walks out. He's got one last gate to get through, though. Mm. This one's going to be tricky. Because normally there's someone there, you have to talk to them, they open the gate for you, it's this whole thing. Not today. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Not only was no one there, the gate was just wide open. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how Perugia stole the Mona Lisa. Oh my gosh. He went home to his one-bedroom apartment, and that's where the Mona Lisa stayed for two years. Wow. But how did police not suspect him? He worked at the Louvre. Yeah. He had a criminal record. Um, One instance was he drunkenly tried to rob a sex worker, but she hit him and he got arrested. Um, Then another time he got arrested for trying to steal some pipes. So they had his fingerprints on file. Yeah. Case closed, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, let me unbuckle my seatbelt. It's over. (laughs) Please exit the ride. No. Oh, no. So here was the problem. Back then, police thought that fingerprints were important. Just not that important. Gosh. So they only, they never took a full set of fingerprints. They would just do your right hand. Uh Uh-huh. And the print that he left on the frame of the Mona Lisa was from his left hand. Oh. (laughs) Interestingly, they... Took other measurements, like the size of your ears and stuff. That really stood out to me. I knew! I was waiting for it! You're like, listen, I'll give you my path, but don't you dare measure my ears! They come in to measure my ears, and I'm just spread eagle. Don't you dare measure my ears! You write them down as normal, and you can do whatever you want! So, he was also an employee at the Louvre. So, what about all those police interviews? Yeah. Okay. So, according to one documentary I watched, 
the police forgot to talk to four people. And Just Perugia, forgot to yeah. talk to them? And Perugia was one of them. Oh, my god! They forgot gosh. to talk to the guys who put the glass on the paintings. Uh-huh. So he slipped through the cracks. Another documentary said that Perugia just didn't show up the day they were taking fingerprints. And that a police officer did come and search his apartment. But Perugia apparently hid the Mona Lisa face down in this, like, cubby-looking thing where he kept firewood. And remember, it was a wood painting. Mm -hmm. And so the officer looked in there, saw a bunch of wood... He didn't, like, pull out every piece to see if there was a famous painting on the other side. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So he just slipped through the cracks. Did both documentaries say he slipped through the cracks? That was me both times. (laughs) (laughs) Did I say that twice? I'm not saying smock again. I can tell you that. (laughs) So his trial started on June 4th, 1914 in Florence. He told the court he did it because he was patriotic. He wanted the Mona Lisa to hang in the Uffizi Gallery <laughs> in, in Italy. Mm-hmm. But the prosecution was like, uh, no. Yeah. You wanted to steal the painting to sell it, even though Brandy says that's a bad idea. It's a terrible idea. They included your name yeah. in, in the court. I mean. They're like, <laughs> like a hundred years from now, somebody's <laughs> going to be like, that's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> so the prosecution's like, this patriotism thing is all bullshit. Yeah. He was in it for the money. Um, but Perugia and his defense denied that. Perugia said, the only thing I had in mind was to give a gift to Italy. And I didn't intend to make any money off of it. Did he sell it to the guy that came to the creepy hotel? You sound just like the prosecution. <laughs> So, yeah, the prosecution's like, uh, that sounds really nice. Uh, if it were true, it'd be even nicer. <laughs> they were like, you asked the art dealer for 500,000 lira. And by the way, we know that you tried to sell this painting to an English art dealer a year ago. So you wanted the money. Mm-hmm. Okay. The defense was like, no, this was patriotism at its finest. Also, Perugia is mentally deficient. He's childish. He's not with it. He's not totally responsible for this. But the prosecution is, again, saying, no. I mean, he pulled this off. He took the Mona Lisa from the Louvre. He hid it for two years without doing any discernible damage to it. He's not dumb. He's mentally with it. Here's something interesting. So in one of the documentaries I watched, they basically went to all the grandchildren of all the people involved uh-huh. in this and talked to them. And they talked to the grandson of the psychologist who determined that Perugia was mentally deficient. Mm-hmm. And the guy was like, here's the thing. My grandpa was a socialist. He really sympathized with Perugia. I think he overplayed the whole mentally deficient yeah. thing. I don't think he, I think he was just trying to help his cause. Yeah. But the tribunal found Perugia guilty. He was sentenced to one year and 15 days in prison. His lawyers appealed, and they got his sentence reduced to seven months. So before I move on, what do you think of that? Uh, I don't think that seems like that much time. Um, But he didn't destroy the art. It wasn't harmed in any way. They found, like, a tiny little... Two tiny little things. 
Yeah, I not, think that's probably fine. See, I, I was like, man, that would not happen in America. In America, we would stick a boot up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Toby Keith. <laughs> yeah. I was seriously, while I was looking at that, I was like, there's no way someone goes into an art, like the Getty, and they take a pay. Oh, no. Did he get to keep the money? No. <laughs> <laughs> What? Did he keep the money? No. Just asking. <laughs> I don't even know that the money exchanged Actually hands. Actually exchanged hands, yeah. I would bet it didn't. Yeah. Because that initial meeting, they were just like, let me make sure this is real. Yeah. Anyway. So, public reaction. It's even a dumber fucking crime then. Yeah. He didn't even get the, the 500,000 lira. have it. Take it out of this dumbass. <laughs> so you think he was mentally deficient? <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> so public reaction was kind of interesting. A lot of people in Italy found him very sympathetic. They kind of liked what he did in yeah. kind of a way, but at the same time they were like, "This was pretty dumb." Yeah, it was dumb. <laughs> so one thing that a lot of people still debate is why he took the Mona Lisa. Was it for money? Was it for patriotism? So, like I said, in one of the documentaries, they go and talk to the children. Or was he just trying to spice things up in his apartment? <laughs> By hiding it face down. That's <laughs> <laughs> just when people came over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they interviewed Perugia's daughter, his only child. Uh-huh. She was like 84 when they uh-huh. interviewed her for the documentary. And it was really sad. She, she doesn't really remember her dad. She was a toddler when he yeah. died very suddenly. And she was adamant that he did this because he loved Italy and because the French called him Dirty Macaroni. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you could tell she was proud of that story. That was the story she'd been told. But over the course of the documentary, they did a bunch of... Of course you'd believe that story. Yeah. Well, it's a lot better than just like, he wanted He wanted 500,000 lira. Yeah. So they did a bunch of research for this documentary and they actually found some of the letters that were confiscated that he wrote to his family after he stole the Mona Lisa. And he never said in the letters, like, oh, I stole the Mona Lisa. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> what he did say was, I'm going to make a ton of money. Yes. Very soon. All in one shot. And I'll share it with you. Yeah. He was in it for the money. So at the end of the documentary, they show her the letters and she was really upset. <gasps> Why would they do that? Was that necessary? Well, she's I, 84 years old. She's been living on this image of her dad. No. They thought about not showing no, her. No, I don't like these documentaries now, Kristen. <laughs> they thought about not showing her. Well, they should have kept with that thought. <laughs> she. They just ruined her whole image of her dad. The thing is, though, like... No, you're not going to justify this. No, me. no, after hearing the letters, <laughs> just for to me personally... I think the letters are kind of relatable. Like, he was really, he was dirt poor. And he's just saying, I'm going to come into some money all in one shot. I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to travel. I I don't think he seems like such a terrible guy. I don't think he's a terrible guy either. But I think those documentary makers are <laughs> terrible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Write them a strongly worded I'm letter. going to. Okay. Are you ready? It was cruel and unnecessary is what I'm getting at. Do you really think so? I do. See, it was funny because like 
her kids, I mean, they all handled it fine. They were there to like look at the letters and they were like, wow. Did yeah. she cry? Uh... I can't remember. And I don't know why I can't remember. I watched this at like midnight last night. Um, she was there in front of a bunch of cameras. So I think she wanted to keep it together. But you could tell it was upsetting. Hmm. You know, I love seeing a documentary about fucking 84 year olds getting horribly upset. <laughs> God dang. <laughs> hey, this is proof you're not a psychopath. <laughs> the fact that you're getting fired up about this. <laughs> Okay, yeah, maybe it wasn't cool. <laughs> so, are you ready for the plot twist? Yeah. All right. There's this other school of thought that maybe Perugia didn't act alone, and maybe he was not the mastermind of this crime. In 1931, a new story came out. An American journalist named Carl Decker published an interview in the Saturday Evening Post. It was an interview with a con artist named Eduardo Dovofierno. <laughs> it was good. Thank you. It was. <laughs> what was on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post? I don't know. Some Norman Rockwell I know. Shit. I want to know which one it was. Okay, um, it was the one with like the cute dog and the kid and the fishing pole. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. I can see it now. <laughs> no idea what was on. Okay. So the only reason he published the interview was because Eduardo was dead. That mm-hmm. had been their agreement, that as soon as he died, then Carl Decker could publish this story. Here's the story. Eduardo was a big-time con artist with connections to, to the art world. He had a good relationship with an excellent art restorer. So their plan was to forge the Mona Lisa multiple times and sell it to very wealthy clients for a ton of money. Mm. But obviously, no one would have bought it because they knew it was in the Louvre. Yeah. Unless it wasn't. (gasps) So, they figured that if the Mona Lisa was missing from the Louvre, then they could create a bunch of fake Mona Lisas, sell them to wealthy people. All while maintaining the, keeping the original safe. Right, right. Yeah. So he says he went to Perugia, talked him into stealing the painting, also had him work with a couple accomplices. And he says that they pulled this off. They sold five or six forged Mona Lisas to wealthy people all over the world. Then, okay, who's fucking buying that? Good question. No, it's dumb. That's dumb. You can't... (laughs) I had just gotten over this, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready to jump back in oh, both no. feet. So Perugia took it to Florence, where it was discovered and eventually returned to the Louvre. But when it was returned to the Louvre, Eduardo, Eduardo told all the buyers, hey, be cool, you've got the real mm-hmm. one. The Louvre is just embarrassed by this whole thing. So they made a copy. You've got the real Mona Lisa. Yeah. What do you think about that story? Well, what else were you supposed to say? Everybody know they were fake by then, so. So, this is, I think it's a an incredible story. Um, 
part of me wants to believe it because it's so nutty and like cool and like I love the idea of yeah. you know these fake Mona Lisas all over the world. Mm-hmm. But both of the documentaries brought up the fact that like have any of these fake Mona exactly. Lisas ever surfaced? Exactly. They're like it's been like a hundred years since yeah. this crime. One of them would have surfaced yeah. by now. No, it's total BS. No, because who's buying the fucking Mona Lisa? Okay, I still think you're wrong on that. I am not wrong, Kristen. Okay. Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Okay. They had a bunch of paintings stolen one night, like some Rembrandts and stuff. Like, there's a black market for stuff like okay, that. Okay, yes, but those are not... I would argue mm-hmm. that the Mona Lisa is top five most recognizable fine art. Mm-hmm. Now it is. Let me get you something else. <laughs> Because I think this is really interesting. Okay, I'm going to jump ahead. Where are they now? They're all dead. But but no. So the thing that is interesting to me about this is the Mona Lisa, when it was taken, yes, it was appreciated for being excellent art. Art critics knew it very well. But it was not a must-see painting in the Louvre. Okay. And a lot of people, myself included... (laughs) think that it wasn't that Perugia was really so obsessed with the Mona Lisa. It was that that was a small painting Mm -hmm. that was easier to carry than the others. So at the time it was taken, like I said, art critics knew it really well. The average person didn't. So like, for example, when the Washington Post ran a story saying that the Mona Lisa had been taken, they ran the wrong picture Mm. because people didn't really know what it looked like. All right. Did I just poop on your sugar pops there <laughs> okay first of all <laughs> what <And> then, <laughs> i did not take into account that it was not as famous of a painting back then but i think that's what's so interesting is like there's this theory that thanks to this heist the mona lisa has been brought into like this other stratosphere of celebrity that it would not have been in had it not been stolen that's probably true. and a lot of people don't myself included don't as know of yesterday know why you know, it's as famous as it is yeah yeah because yeah. we've all forgotten the story of the heist but you look mad right now mm, i still think it's a terrible plan yeah i don't think it's a great plan <laughs> but i mean there's i think there's a market I think there's definitely like you think about like the crazy rich dudes who just have more money than they know what to do with. And it's just like a competition with their awful rich guy friends. Like (laughs) (laughs) clearly I'm talking about people I know nothing about, but like, you know, they can all buy all the same shit, but not everyone can own the Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Come on. Come on. No. Uh, yeah. No, I'm not buying it. <laughs> I just don't know because there are. Eventually, there will be people mm-hmm. who you will brag about it to and show it off to who know that that shit's supposed to be somewhere else. Yeah, I'm not saying it's smart to own it. I'm not saying it's smart to steal it. I'm just saying there's a market. People will buy it, and you. I think you could make money for for it. Now, not a ton of money because it's not done the legit way. Mm-hmm. Well, no, a ton of money. Of course, a yeah. ton of money. But not a thousand lira, yeah. Kristen. Yeah. $2.8 million or whatever you said. Eh. Nothing <laughs> to me. <laughs> Jump change. That's right. <laughs> All right. 
you look very unsatisfied. I am. <laughs> you know what you look like right now? You look like you're going to drive away from here. And then like 10 minutes into the drive, you're going to be like, damn it, I should have said this. Yes. <laughs> I look like that every week. Chris. <laughs> what do you think of Perugia? Um, well, I mean... Yeah, I think he probably just wanted money, but what a hell of an argument to come up with that you're just yeah. super patriotic. <laughs> I see, I kind of think you can make the argument that he was probably both. Yeah. 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 I don't yeah, see yeah, why yeah. people get stuck on like it was one or the other. No, think, yeah. He was probably both. I think you can be like, I want money and I don't like that the French people mm-hmm. call me dirty macaroni. Dirty macaroni. I wouldn't like being called dirty macaroni. I'm not Italian. It's so. one of those things like you hear it and you're like, that's not bad. But if somebody says it to you mean enough, you're like, all right. Oh. Easy does it. I don't want to be called dirty anything. <laughs> so that is the story of the Mona Lisa. I didn't know about that. I had no yeah. idea. I had no mm-hmm. idea. No. I feel like this podcast is making me smarter. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like... I think it's opening our minds to the world, Kristen. Wow. Beautiful. Yes. <laughs> Is that why I'm so good at pronouncing French words now? You're... <laughs> you knew it was only a matter of time. I was waiting for you to fit that in Before there. I did the Keenan Thompson yes. impression. Do you remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. bathtub. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was the funniest shit on earth. Oh, yeah. And I was right. Uh, no, I thought that story was very good. My dissatisfaction has nothing to do with the story you told. Uh-huh. It's a, the dumb crime. I Yeah, I think it would be... Did you ever read the book The Goldfinch? No. Okay, it's about, it's about a guy who ends up taking a, a, a serious piece of art. And yeah, I mean, what do you do with this thing that is very, very hard to sell? Yeah. That is very precious that you have to keep in these certain conditions. What do you okay. what do you do? I mean, it's so just, what, it would weigh What on is you. brought to my mind? Uh-huh. This is kind of a sad story, but <laughs> okay. bear with me. When the Royals pitcher mm-hmm. Ventura died in a car accident. Yeah. In the Dominican. Mm-hmm. Right? Wasn't it the Dominican? Dominican Republic? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. He was reportedly wearing his world championship ring. Yeah. yeah. And people came to the car accident site before the police did, and his ring went missing. That's horrible. So it's believed that somebody stole his ring. Sure. But what the fuck do you do with it? You, it was worth a ton of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was diamonds and jewels and whatever. I think they were like, I don't know, several thousand dollars, like $30,000 a ring. Mm-hmm. And then it now belongs to it belonged to a player who's now dead and was a huge celebrity in his home country. Yeah. But you can't sell it. You can't wear it around. You can't do anything with it. What is the point? You can't tell anybody you have it. Yeah. It's a dumb crime. That one, at least you could melt it down. Oh, yeah. Everybody's got that smelting fucking thing in their garage. No. 
like take it out to my smelting room and melt it saying, down? I'm just saying, like, th- at least with jewelry. <laughs> at least. Like with the Hope Diamond. Like they cut that down. Yeah. And they, yeah. Mm-hmm. Boy, so suck on that, Brandy. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I, yeah, I think that's one of those things. Mm. I'm just telling you that criminals are stupid. <laughs> Not all of them. But when say. you do a crime that you can't make pay off, what is the point? But see, I'm saying like I think you can make that pay no. off. Yes, you can. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> I'm convinced. I'm convinced. If you find the right rich weirdo, you can make it happen. Hmm. Hmm. The thing I have learned about this is (laughs) if you were going to commit a crime, (laughs) an art heist would be like the last I'm never doing it because it is way too much work. There's way too much risk in it. What is the payoff? Millions. No, because still, somebody's going to find that, even if you get the millions, if somebody finds that that stolen painting mm-hmm. hanging in fucking J.P. Morgan's secret vault, uh-huh. and they're like, J.P. Morgan, did you steal that? No, he's going to tell you who he bought it from. Yeah, but he's not allowed to buy that. You're not allowed to buy something that's been stolen like that. No, but still, his crime is not, you know, he gets immunity because he says, yes, I bought it, knowingly stole no, it, but no. I, will, I will give no. you the person who stole it. Okay, probably he would get immunity yes! because he's a big rich guy. <laughs> but by that point, you've changed your name to Carlos Danger. <laughs> You're like, in some other country, you're hiding out. You've got your millions. <laughs> you're mad because you know I'm right. No. <laughs> I'm mad because an art heist is clearly not the way to go. Oh, yeah, I agree. Not not great. Nope. Checking it off the list. But I think you... Possible money-making schemes. Yep. <laughs> Next, I'm going to check out Amway. <laughs> Brandy, I've got news for you. I didn't just ask you here to do a podcast. I didn't bring me here to sell me to church. I've got like five multi-level marketing companies that I'm going to try to sell you right now. You look like you could use some Mary Kay. Sorry, that was the most insulting way to say that. Uh, Kristen, Jesus. Good. You look like you could use a beach Stop. body coach. <laughs> now that does suck. We all know that feeling when a friend from like way back in the day is like, hey, how you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm great. How are you? And they're like, so <laughs> have you heard about beach body? <laughs> I noticed you look really shitty. Have you thought about taking better care of your body? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that, friend. Oh, God. Then you go back and you look on Facebook at all the pictures you've posted recently. Yeah. Like, am I okay? Oh, like, what? Questioning my whole life now. <laughs> uh, in mm. conclusion, 
please don't try to sell us MLMs. No. And um, if a major art heist goes down anytime soon, <laughs> I am the last person they will suspect. <laughs> Maybe this was all a ruse. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> That's right. Now I want you. I want to get you a print of the Mona Lisa. I want to. I want to do so many things. I want to stick a severed finger in your chili. I want to. It, okay, it did give me a lot of satisfaction when someone said on Twitter the other day that we ruined Wendy's chili. chili room, yes. Although now I want to try it. My mom and I were just talking about it. How it's delicious. Doesn't doesn't uh, put me off of it at all. What could I say to you that would put you off Wendy's chili? Well, I, when, I told you when I thought somebody pooped in the chili, I was going to be done. But you you told me that that was false. You snopsed it for me. I sure did. Snopsed it right up for me. <laughs> mm. Glad to save you. Well, I will say mm-hmm. thank you for bringing us back up with your story. You would... I. I went through so many different potential cases. <laughs> and you're like, that's not going to be enough. <laughs> no, because I had like I had like some kind of um, weird crimes. Yeah. But if anyone was hurt or injured in any yeah. way, it's like we can't we come can't, back no. from BTK. No, BTK was just a Whew. I'm glad I'm glad it's out of the way. Because you it was knew, like you knew you had to do it. I knew I had to do it because it was something that I read so much about. I was so into it. But Man, so something I didn't mention in my story was the mm-hmm. thermostat thing. I was so, surprised you didn't mention that. Well, it was so fucking long, <laughs> Kristen. I know I napped like a loose security guard. <laughs> so he something he did was that went after he murdered, and I I told you this story the other day, and my right, details weren't right. right, and so let me clarify. Okay, okay. So something he did that he believed would throw the police off. And determining a time of death is when he left a home after committing a murder is he would turn the thermostat way up. Oh, my God. And so God. it would speed up the decomposition. Like, decomposition process. Oh, my God. Yes. And so I told you this story. I read all this stuff about it. I was very obsessed with this case. Watched all the coverage on TV. Zach and I are in our first apartment. I come home. I mean, it's two two years after this stuff has happened. He's yeah. in he's in jail in El Dorado, Kansas, or prison Zach in El Dorado. Is. No, <laughs> Dennis Rader <laughs> is in prison in El Dorado, Kansas. I come home to my apartment. It's dark in there. Nobody mm-hmm. left a lamp on, and I'm like, oh god. And it is a million degrees in my apartment. <laughs> it is so fucking hot in there, and I'm like, <gasps> my heart just starts racing. Yeah, I flip on every light in the apartment, and I go check my thermostat. And it was just a poor design. There was a light switch right by where the thermostat was. And when somebody had hit the light switch on the way out, they had just hit the lever from the thermostat all the way over. But, man, it was a moment of sheer panic. Were you like, he's out? Yes, he's out! He's here in my apartment! Oh. Yeah. That is... BTK, that is scary, scary stuff. Yeah. Because he was just... Out there, interacting with all these people. He murdered his neighbor. Yeah. Six doors down. Yeah. 
And he was an ADT guy. Yes. Okay. When he was a dog catcher guy, yeah, I had heard stories that he euthanized. Oh, he euthanized dogs somebody for no oh, reason. I only came across one like confirmed oh, okay. case. Okay, but yes, he he caught a dog and had it euthanized before the people could even try and come claim it, and yeah, mm. for no no reason at all. Peanut did not care for that one. Yeah, bit. Peanut just sighed in the background <laughs> like this guy. <laughs> Okay. okay. Well, I can't well, say this was a good one. This was a really heavy one. It was a heavy one. Um, nobody fucking cried, Kristen. Was I supposed Lamont- to cry? No. You always give us the heavy ones that make us cry, Lamonte McIntyre. Yeah, that one. I cried like five times in that one. We were both a mess in that oh, episode. We were a hot mess. <laughs> we were. I, I don't know. It affected me too much. That, Way that too one. much. Because I cried the whole day before as oh, I was researching man. it. It was a mess. I'll tell you. I So Zach went to bed last night before I finished my um, episode. And uh-huh. so I go to bed. And it's like I turn all the lights off in the house. I go to bed. And I'm laying there. And I'm like. I am so creeped out right now because yes. I read about this creepy guy for the last four hours. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> I know that feeling. And sometimes it's like, gosh, why am I having trouble getting to sleep yes. right now? Oh, oh, I remember because I spent hours and hours and hours reading horrible stuff. Yes. Hmm. Well, if you're like us and, you know, like me, not a psychopath, but have a morbid curiosity. Wait, how about like both of us and not psychopaths? No, Kristen, Jerry's still out on Kristen. <laughs> It's because I want to steal a painting, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. And you liked what you heard here on this episode and made it through this whole episode. Jesus. You've been with us for a while. (laughs) Then go head on over to our Facebook page. Give us a like. um, Leave us a review. um, Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Head on over to our Twitter. LG. No, let's go. Number two court. Mm-hmm. And then, and I'm finally actually. Yeah, we're actually stuff. doing stuff on our Twitter now. So I'm gonna be honest. I forgot about. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> we have a heavy Twitter presence now. 19 whole followers. Mm. Um, Very few of them bots. Yes. <laughs> Every follower we get, Norm tells us it's a Russian bot. So. <laughs> We really appreciate his support. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then our Instagram is LGTC Podcast. You know, tell a friend about us. And then join us next week. When we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web. And sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got most of my info from two documentaries, Who Stole Da Vinci's Painting and The Missing Piece, Mona Lisa, Her Thief, The True Story, and an article from artsy.net. And I got my info from murderpedia.org, the court transcripts, and an article in The Atlantic. For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours. But please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff and watch those documentaries. And they have conflicting information, so just know that I did my best. (laughs) 